This is Jocko Podcast number 319 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. As the seals inserted into a rice paddy near where they had taken fire, Carl Nelson's UH-1B Seawolf gunship commenced a right turn at 80 feet above the ground to cover them. His co-pilot, Earl Schott, worked the LZ's edge with his mini guns while his gunners, petty officers Michael Dobson and Tom Clavon fired their M60s. The SEALs patrolled northeast and then east on a dike separating the two rice paddies and then moved north on one perpendicular to the first. As they advanced, the enemy began firing from well-concealed and dug-in positions on a dike covered with heavy vegetation. The SEALs and Nelson's gunship immediately returned fire. As the patrol continued closer toward the tree line, the SEALs took accurate, withering fire from both sides of the dike. Point man James Rowland fell, shot through the groin. He was hit again as he crawled for cover. Seconds later, the platoon commander, Grant Telfer, was shot in both legs. Both SEALs managed to return fire despite their wounds, but the severity of their injuries and the immediate necessity to extract them soon took them out of action. Lieutenant J.G. Tom Richards immediately radioed Carl Nelson and his Seawolf for fire support as he and his fellow SEAL Gary Lawrence advanced under fire to assist the two seriously wounded SEALs. As he dragged Roland to cover, one round passed through Richards' right hand, hitting the stoner's pistol grip. Nevertheless, while Lawrence, Wendell Hedge, and Donald Futrell returned fire, Richards continued to expose himself to enemy fire to drag the wounded to cover. When the automatic weapons man, Futrell, was shot in the chest, he cried out, I'm hit, I'm hit. Richards, sensing the rising panic in Futrell's voice, suspected the man was going into shock. To distract him, Richards ordered Futrell to shut up and return fire. Futrell briefly did so with his M60 and did not go into shock. As Futrell became semi-conscious, Richards pulled him back as well. When Lawrence and Hedge ran out of ammunition minutes later, Richards passed them the linked 5.56 ammo for his now inoperable stoner. The squad regrouped behind a dike and Richards urged the SEALs to keep pouring fire into the enemy as he radioed for emergency extraction. When Lawrence and Hedge ran out of ammunition minutes later, as the battle raged, extraction became imperative. Including himself, Richards had four wounded men, three of them critical. For pilot Carl Nelson and the Seawolves helicopter squadron flying in support of the SEALs, there was no hesitation. And here's a quote from him. My crew knew that leaving anyone behind was not an option. When Nelson saw Richards dragging the wounded SEALs to cover, he alerted the transport helicopter flown by Lieutenant J.G. Edward Dyer to get ready for extraction and descended to cover it from an altitude of about 50 to 70 feet. From the ground, SEALs Lawrence and Hedge providing covering fire with their stoners. Nelson's gunship hit the enemy with devastating rocket and minigun fire while Dyer urgently searched for the SEALs' exact location. On his second pass, Dyer spotted them huddled next to a dike and came in hot, bleeding off airspeed during his approach. 
As the slick hovered, skids wet in a rice paddy, Richards dragged each of the three wounded seals in turn over the dike, then through the rice paddy to the helicopter, lifting each aboard with his one good hand. Richards later wrote, with one hand, it was probably the heaviest lift I ever made. The best one, too. Enemy fire intensified during the loading. Lawrence, still providing cover fire, was about to climb aboard when Dyer began to pull pitch for liftoff as enemy rounds hit the fuselage. Lawrence grabbed the slick skid and held on for dear life until Lieutenant J.G. Richards reached down with his uninjured hand and hauled Lawrence aboard. For Richards' action and disregard for his own personal safety, the officer in charge of SEAL Team 1 Detachment Gulf, Telfer's immediate superior, recommended him for the Silver Star. The award recommendation's summary of action stated, quote, without the conspicuous gallantry and cool perseverance of Lieutenant J.G. Richards, it is doubtful that the patrol could have survived. The next senior officer in the chain of command, located at Navy Special Warfare Group Vietnam in Saigon, endorsed the recommendation. Inexplicably, the chief of staff for the commander U.S. Naval Forces Vietnam downgraded the award to a Bronze Star. That staff went so far as to change the wording cited in the original summary of action. The citation for the downgraded Bronze Star now read, Lieutenant Junior Grade Richards' courage under fire, cool professionalism, and devotion to duty were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Such a substantive change in wording undermined the rationale for the higher award. It it remains unclear why the Chief of Staff, located more than 150 miles from the battlefield, made such an unusual decision. No explanation was ever given. The honor and recognition that were earned that day but not granted still rankles many of the SEALs and Sea Wolves who, along with Richards, risked everything to save First Squad from certain destruction. Some have even argued that his original award recommendation should have been upgraded to a Navy Cross, as Carl Nelson and Edward Dyer were awarded Distinguished Flying Crosses, pointing out that Richards' extraordinary heroism under fire at great personal risk with total disregard for his own life mirrors that of those recommended for higher awards. Seawolf pilot Carl Nelson, who is on this podcast, number 288, expresses the sentiments best. Having flown more than 600 combat missions with scores of those flights in direct support of two SEAL teams, Nelson vividly remembers the scene unfolding below his gunship as the wounded platoon struggled to survive. Nelson recalls, quote, watching a wounded Tom Richards under intense enemy fire drag each of his wounded seals to safety across a series of rice paddy dikes and load them onto the Sea Lord, Hilo. It was the most heroic act that I have ever witnessed. Tom Richards' heroism rates a Navy cross at minimum. He directly saved the lives of his platoon. Now that right there is from an article from Naval History Magazine. It was written in April of 2020 by a guy named Captain Michael G. Slattery. In another section of the article, they give us some more, some more details, some more background on Lieutenant J.G. Tom Richards. 
and it says, christened the Hulk by his fellow SEALs, Tom Richards was well-liked and respected, and he enjoyed a reputation as a highly capable operator. He was a native of Brightwaters, New York, a graduate of Bayshore High School, where he wrestled and played football. Following graduation, he attended Villanova University on a Navy ROTC scholarship. There, he lifted weights and routinely bench pressed 400 pounds. He was commissioned an ensign in the Naval Reserve in 1969. While still a midshipman at Villanova, Richards was accepted to basic underwater demolition SEAL training. When he began the rigorous program with Class 54, the six-foot-tall Richards weighs 235 pounds. He graduated 10 months later with Class 55 at a lean and hard 215 pounds. He was assigned to SEAL Team 1 in Coronado, California. So that's what the article focuses on, talking about that one day in Vietnam. But the, the Hulk continued to serve in the SEAL teams. And if you follow his career forward, from that event in 1971, and you go forward about 20 years to 1991, I was a new guy at SEAL Team 1. I didn't even have my trident yet. I I wasn't even an official SEAL. I graduated BUDS, but I hadn't got my trident yet. It was a Saturday morning, and I was in the gym by myself, and I was smashing some weights, and I was blasting Metallica on the stereo system. And this was a time at SEAL Team 1 where there was a five-disc CD player and the entire thing was filled with all the Metallica albums at that time there were five and it was locked shut so the only thing you could listen you had no choice you were just going to listen to Metallica so I'm in there I've got the music cranked up to an unhealthy level and in walks Captain Richards the Hulk now he's a full captain he had just taken over as the commanding officer at Bud's actually took over before I graduated so we all knew who he was And I immediately, I'm a junior enlisted guy, I immediately run over and I turn down the stereo because I don't want to bother the senior officer. And as I turn down the stereo, Captain Richards, just me and him in there on a Saturday morning, Captain Richards goes, hey! (laughs) And I look over and he says, turn that shit back up. (laughs) And so I did and worked out and he was working out and we were throwing weight around, and he was throwing around more weight than me, by the way. I doubt that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then you fast forward a little bit further. I think it was 1996 or 1997. I think it was 1997. And now I meet the Hulk again. Only now he's the Admiral. He's in charge of all the SEALs. And he interviewed me and wrote me a recommendation to become a SEAL officer. And I got accepted into that program and carried on with the rest of my career, but never forgot the impression that Admiral Richards left on me and on the SEAL community. And it's an honor to have him here tonight to share some of his experiences, some of his stories, some of his lessons learned from a 30-year career in the SEAL teams. Admiral, thanks for coming by. Well, Jocko, uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, when I sit here and listen to uh, those excerpts from uh, Michael Slattery's uh, article, that uh, takes me back to those rice patties. <clears throat> and it is a day that I would have to describe as one of the worst days 
in my entire naval career. It had to be the worst day. But I'll also tell you, it was the best fucking day. Because <laughs> I got those guys. I got those guys out of, the, out of the kill zone, over to the protection of the dike, and then into the helo. Yeah, I was a big, strong guy. There's something called uh, adrenaline rush, adrenaline high, and all that other stuff. And you know, maybe you could uh, you help some, uh, you know, you know, limp dick, uh, you know, pencil neck geek, uh, you know, drag some of those guys across the rice paddy. But I seriously effing doubt it. Uh, Thankfully, it was me that was only wounded in one hand, and I was able to drag those guys out of there. Listening to Carl Nelson make those gun runs. Uh, I don't know if there's any car nuts in the room or listening here, but one of my roommates at Villanova had a 1967 Corvette, 427, 425 damn horsepower. And when Skip stood on that thing, I uh, believe he had a couple of cutouts, legal or not, but when Skip stood on that sucker, it roared. Well, that is the closest sound that I can describe to those who haven't been there when a minigun rips off and lights off. And that was one of the most beautiful sounds that I've ever heard. So as I'm going back and forth, uh, Grant Telfer in his uh, uh, his update to the uh, to the award recommendation, uh, you know, used those terms that you used in the article uh, without regard to uh, to my own personal safety or my life. Uh, I have to tell you that I never gave a thought to anything but my teammates, who were you know, Grant was shot in both legs, uh, Rock Jim Rowland. Uh, Shot in the chest and the groin. And, of course, Jim's major concern with those injuries was would the equipment ever work again? Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, you, you mentioned how uh, uh, Don Futrell was getting ready to go into shock. Uh, you know, I'd never been trained about what somebody going into shock sounds like or doesn't. Uh, I had no clue. But as soon as I heard Don... And, uh, you know, you could hear his voice going up a few octaves. Uh, he referred to it in a, <laughs> in a note to me about his girly voice. You know, hey, Don, you were just shot in the damn chest. Uh, and uh, you, you got a right to be, you know, you know, going into panic or, or whatever it is. I didn't, we didn't have that conversation. This is flashing through my mind. Uh, but uh, I could hear it, and I just said, you know, it just came to me. as Get his mind off his situation and get it back onto our situation. Uh, I didn't realize how badly he was injured and that he was going to be you know, useless as tits on a boar hog after that. But you know, I just wanted to get him back into action uh, and and out of out of any any shock because you know we're we're in the middle of nowhere and uh, you know, I have no idea how if we're even going to get out of there and if we get out of there how long it's going to take and so on and so forth. So uh, you know just the uh, uh, the great training from the. Legends in SEAL Team 1, before I got there, you know, that we used to call it SEAL basic indoctrination training, and then we'd go through a pre-deployment uh, training program. But uh, those uh, who uh, set the history of SEAL Team 1 before I got there, uh, those guys 
made all the uh, made all the difference in the training and my reaction and everybody else's reaction in the in the rice paddy. So as I was saying, it was the best of days and it was the worst of days. Uh, you know, thank God everybody got out of there. Uh, I don't know how often it happens, but I'm willing to bet not very often. Both Roland and Futrell, when they were shot in the chest, the bullets passed front to back, didn't touch a bone. You just went through soft tissue, and the uh, the heat of the round actually uh, yeah, cauterized the uh, cauterized the injury. Uh, those guys, you know, who are you know, goddamn lucky is, uh, is is all I can say. Of course, I didn't know that at the time, uh, and. Uh, you know, uh, it was just uh, just a real uh, a real uh, you know, crappy situation. But uh, as those guys got wounded, you know, my you know my focus became, we got to get out of Dodge. You know, we got to just get the hell out of here. And uh, it was a hot DZ. We had seventy or eighty, ninety uh, VC. We hadn't realized that, of course. Uh, but we had all these guys uh, uh, in the uh, in the uh, uh, in the jungle on the other side of the uh, the rice dike and uh constant fire uh the uh, you know he was, you know carl providing that fire at 70 80 100 feet above above ground level he's uh, he's right there in the uh, in, in the in the action uh, uh you know that's that's not a hard shot to make if you know how to shoot at helos uh thank god they didn't uh so Carl and his crew are in danger, uh, and and uh, then the uh, then the slick, uh, the helo is called a slick, is because it doesn't have the mini guns and the rockets and so on. Slick comes in naked to uh, to pull us out of a uh, out of a uh, of a hot LZ. Um, as you said, uh, he he hovered there, and I had to make those three trips under fire, uh, and uh, without uh, Wendell Hedge and Gary Lawrence providing that cover fire, I couldn't have gone back and forth to that rice dike to get those guys. Uh, you know, and so uh, as uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it, uh, Gary Lawrence uh, is you know, you know, banging away, and uh, he, uh, he runs out of bullets. And, uh, and he calmly turns to me, and he says, I'm out of bullets. <laughs> Jesus H Christ! Uh, so, seeing as my uh, as my uh, weapon didn't work, and I usually went out with uh, you know a thousand to twelve hundred rounds of uh, of ammo on my body, uh, I uh, I ripped I ripped off a bandolier, and and you know for a little bit of background is you know just like you see in those old movies with Pancho Villa and all those you know bad guys in the, in the westerns, they got these bandoliers of uh, of ammo wrapped around their body. Well, that's exactly what I had. But what I did is I put on a uh, put on a t-shirt or a blue and gold, wrapped the bandoliers around my body, and then on top of those I put on a uh, on a set of camis, uh, not only to cut down on the uh, on the noise, but it also cut down on the reflection of the uh, the brass of the rounds, and it protected them from anything that we might run into. Uh, so when uh, when those guys ran out of bullets, I did a button on my uh, on my cami uh, you know, shirt top and just popped the uh, popped the link and you know threw 120 rounds off to uh, Lawrence and 120. Uh, and it's kind of like you know, if you if you watch it, it's kind of like a snake flying through the air. And, uh, and they grabbed it and they uh, they pop it down and they uh, you, know, you know slam it in the uh, in the receiver of their uh, of their weapons and they start returning fire. Uh, quite uh, quite a brave situation for those guys. 
and and they were completely exposed. Yeah, you know, well, we're all completely exposed. And as as I'm loading the uh, the guys into the helo, uh, I'd, I'd like to take full credit for that. But uh, the, uh, the the crew members, as I, as I got these guys up out of the muck, I mean, you know, the uh, because they hadn't sat down into the rice paddy, the uh, the, the deck of the uh, of the cabin of the uh, of the Huey was too high for me to lift these guys, and I'd I'd get them up high enough, and then the crew members would uh, you know drag them into the uh, drag them into the helo. Uh, so. It was a uh, it was a bad day at Black Rock, a real shitty day at Black Rock, to be honest with you. So it was the worst day of my career <clears throat> and the best. Um, I got a bunch of questions. We'll we'll, we'll get to Vietnam, uh, back to Vietnam, because I'd like to hear about how that you know what your workup was like, how you ended up there. We'll get there, but just to give us a little background on you, let's just talk about it. You know what what, what your childhood was like. How did you become the Hulk? <laughs> Well, that was pretty tough becoming a Hulk. I'll tell you. And I'll tell you why. My uh, my dad was a policeman, and uh, today policemen who, who are our first responders going out and dealing with uh, God knows what in society, they're not paid well enough for what they do. Uh, go back uh, sixty or seventy years, they weren't paid. You know, period. Uh, so. Uh, there weren't a lot of second helpings at the uh, the dinner table, uh, so uh, uh, while I uh, grew to about uh, yeah, about six foot five eleven and a half is probably the god's honest truth. Uh, <laughs> if uh, if it wasn't nailed down, anybody else in the house wasn't eating it. I was, you know. There's an old story about the only thing that ever broke was a handle on the refrigerator door. Well, I I broke the handle on the refrigerator door more than once, uh, but uh, somewhere uh, in uh, I. I, I I never wrestled. I went to a uh, a Catholic grammar school, and uh, I am a retired Catholic. Uh, but I went to a Catholic grammar school and uh, uh, got to uh, the high school. It was the first time I saw anything like uh, like wrestling, and and it was interesting. And so I you know, went out for the you know, wrestling team, and uh, we had a a great uh, freshman wrestling coach, and uh, I want to say his name was Gordon Hauserath, but. Uh, a uh, great, a uh, great coach, and uh, uh, he was kind of ambivalent on the benefits of uh, of weight training, uh, but he also was uh, helpful in getting me a uh, a, a lifeguard uh, job in a you know, village of Brightwaters at one of the, you know, the, the beaches, uh, and that uh, was on a bay and a canal, so he didn't need any open water skills at that point in time. So uh, what I did that summer is I had probably like a 110 or 150 pound weight set and I brought it over to the uh, to the beach and we had a little you know garage kind of thing and uh, and on my breaks you know I'd go over and do a few sets of this that or the other thing and uh, lunch break I'd do a few more sets and before I got on my bicycle and rode home I'd do a few more sets uh, I came back to uh, to wrestling the uh, the next year uh, with JV and uh, Coach uh, Hausrath calls me out to uh, to use me as the demonstration dummy on some particular move that he was going to do, right? So uh, he you know calls me out and I lay down on the mat and he uh, he you know, is telling the rest of the team what he's going to do, and I just locked. And here's this you know thirty five year old man uh, you know one hundred and sixty five hundred and seventy pounds uh, you know you know wrestling uh, you know champion in his uh, in his own right and here's this you know smart ass kid who's been lifting weights all summer long <laughs> and he couldn't move me and he and he said to me he says what did you do 
and uh, you know change people's minds about weightlifting and conditioning for wrestling at least at Bayshore High School. Uh, where did you get where did you get the idea? Were you looking at like uh, uh, magazines? I mean, how did you figure out even the idea of weightlifting? Where'd you get the weight set from? Well, Ray Plate, if you're listening to this, uh, it's your fault. Uh, we had a uh, we had a guy on the uh, uh, on the uh, on the football team. Uh, name is Ray Plate, uh, and uh, saw him at a you know, fifty year reunion a few years ago, and uh, he's doing well. But <clears throat> Ray had arms that looked like somebody's legs, and Ray wasn't the biggest guy on the team uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But Ray was our nose tackle, and nobody on the other teams pushed Ray around. And I said. That looks like it works. Let's give that a try, and so I did, and I, I learned I learned a lot uh, on my own. But uh, I uh, I went down to uh, I got the Navy ROTC scholarship, as you said, to uh, to, to Villanova, and uh, uh, that's a uh, that's an academic scholarship. Uh, uh, you've got to pass a physical, but it's it's not like uh, you know going to buds. I mean, you gotta you gotta fog a mirror. You gotta you know, have twenty twenty vision and uh, and uh, and that kind of thing. And so uh, I uh, you know got the scholarship and I went on down to Villanova. And uh, you know, I could have you know tried to walk onto the football team. They did not have a wrestling team. I could have tried to walk onto the football team, but you know, I said, I don't know what this academic stuff is really going to be. I've got this uh, scholarship, so uh, before I overload my uh, myself, let me just uh, you know not go out for football. And so, uh, the football team at the time used the same weight room as you know the the wannabes or the uh, anybody else at the uh, the school. So I, you know, I lifted, uh, you know, with the uh, with a lot of the guys on the uh, the football team, and uh, there were uh, there were a couple of monsters on the football team, and the uh, the number one rated 190, 198 pound powerlifter, not only collegiately but nationally, AAU uh, was on the Villanova football team. Uh, name was John Zarenko, uh, you know, stronger than the law allowed. Uh, but uh, <laughs> with, a, with a name like Zarenko, his nickname was Dizzy. Uh, but uh, John, uh, uh, John could, uh, could quote only bench press about three and a quarter, 335, and he was always complaining. Now, listen, this is a 198-pounder, you know, 5'8", 198-pounder. Uh, Played fullback, uh, and he's benching 335 pounds. You know, I mean, that's something to write home about. But John could squat 600 and something. He mm-hmm. could deadlift 700 and something. If somebody tried to tackle him around the waist, they were going to break their shoulder. So I really got interested in uh, in, in lifting at the time, and uh, we had a uh, we had 198 another 198 pounder uh, at the at the school and uh, Jim Rapucci was uh, was also ranked nationally and uh, uh, he was the number two 198 college lifter. Uh, Jim was a little bit stronger in the upper body and uh, you know, Jim had uh, at 198 pounds a 410 pound bench press competition bench press. So uh, we uh, uh, you know we were always going neck and neck and I lifted at 242. Uh, Yes, I did get up to 250 if my wife is listening to this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I lifted at 242, and uh, uh, I had, uh, you know, I had uh, you know, a good, strong 415 
bench press. And my last collegiate meet I went into, I opened it for, went to 4.15 because Jim's record was 4.10, so I had to break it by five pounds. You, know, <laughs> you, got, you got to screw it to boys, you know? So I, I hit the 4.15 just to get the school record. And uh, back then, equipment was not as... Uh, uh, regulated, if you will, as it is today. You know, you know, the bench had to be, it did not have to be X number of centimeters high, X number of centimeters wide. So this bench was just a little bit wider than we were used to benching with. And when I hit that 415, I, I came down and it, it sort of, my shoulders sort of tweaked, but I pushed it up anyway. And I just said, you know, uh, I've you know, got to, you know, do uh, do deadlifts here. I don't want to really screw up the shoulder because uh, my plan had been to set the uh, the, the record. I, and I'd done it in the gym at 435, but uh, I never hit it in, uh, in competition. Hit it in the gym, but not a competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that, that whole weightlifting thing became, uh, it just, it, well, it's something that uh, that I've, you know, I'm still trying to do. Uh, so, fast forward to showing up at but oh no, wait a minute, we got to go back. We got to go back. Well, to how did you hear about the SEAL teams? Uh, Reader's Digest, <laughs> if you can believe it. Reader's Digest magazine. I'd been. Was that was that in high school? or Was that while you were at Villanova? That was when I got to Villanova. <clears throat> As I said, uh, my, my father was a policeman. We didn't have a lot of money in the house, uh, and uh, um, I'll, 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 I'll wail on my uh, older brother and, uh, and, and older sister. Uh, if there was any money to go to college, they got it. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was explained to me. If I was going to college, I was going to college on a scholarship. So uh, I actually had a part-time job that I was, uh, I was planning on doing the day of the ROTC exam. <clears throat> and uh, my father says, you're taking this test. And well, it was 20 or 25 bucks. Doesn't sound like much today. But in 19, oh, what was that, uh, 60, uh, 65, that was a lot of money, 64, 65. So anyway, I, uh, I passed on the you know, 20 or 25 bucks and went into that uh, ROTC test with a little bit of a bad attitude. But you know, as soon as I got in the room, I said, oh, wait a minute. You know, you're not getting the 25 bucks. You know, that's, that's, that's history. You know, let's, let's take the test. Uh, so, as you may know, you have to take the test, then you have to pass the physical, and the uh, ROTC program tells you that they will provide you with the scholarship. You then have to apply to the university and get accepted. So, a completely different process. So, uh, I did. Uh, my father, being a practicing or a convert to Catholicism, was uh, adamant. He says, you know, there's, you know, there were about 50 schools on the list then that had ROTC scholarships. He says, you can go to these five or six. Those were like, uh, you know, Holy Cross, uh, you know, Villanova, Notre Dame. Uh, those were the those were the schools that I had to apply to. Uh, I applied, and uh, you know that uh, the rest of that is history. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, it was a it was it was a great program. So I get to Villanova, and uh, uh, I. Uh, what, let's back up a little bit more to you know, staying in in school. I was I was a good student in, in high school. I was, uh, you know, I was the one that the rest of the honor class kids couldn't figure out what I was doing in the room. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, and in uh, in, uh, in in New York, uh, they had a uh, still do probably a program uh, called the Regents uh, Regents Testing. Uh, so at the end of end of the year, uh, you would. Uh, uh, you would take a, uh, a statewide exam in, you know, math, chemistry, physics, whatever it might be. And uh, I don't think I got under 94 in any of those. Uh, so that's 
part of what uh, helped my uh, yeah, my uh, transcript for uh, review by Villanova look look pretty good. Uh, and I had uh, scholarship offers to uh, the uh, State University of New York system, and uh, I was you know pretty much determined that I was going to go to a place called Cortland State. Uh, Cortland had a, uh, an excellent, uh, you know, PT program uh, you know, for uh, you know, teaching, and uh, they, uh, they also had a pretty good wrestling team at the time. Uh, so I, uh, How good did you do in wrestling in high school? Uh, I, I, I did better than, uh, better than it shows, and I, so I'll tell you my, uh, uh, my, uh, my uh, complaint on that one. Uh, <clears throat> I... Uh, in, in my uh, in my senior year, uh, I uh, I you know, was wrestling this one kid, and uh, I want to say it was from uh, from West Islip, but uh, one of our big rivals, and so on. Anyway, the uh, the guy stood on me uh, from the, uh, in the in wrestling. You have a you know you start the start the match. Both guys are on your feet, and then the second and third rounds, you know, you start with one guy in what's called the bottom position, and the other guy, uh, his arms around uh, around the wrestler is in the top position. One of the most common moves is a stand from the bottom, and the guy on the bottom will stand and rip the uh, guy's hands off of his waist, uh, the guy who was on top, and, you know, get away and get his one point for the, uh, for the neutral position. Well, I said, you know, okay, stand. So what I did is as a guy was standing, I just uh, went up with him, used his own, uh, his own momentum, lifted him off his feet, and swung his body so it was kind of like perpendicular to mine. So now what I did is I, uh, instead of throwing him to the mat, I just, you know, bent down to the mat. I, you know, bent my knees. And as I said, this guy is, you know, perpendicular to me being upright, so he's parallel to the mat. So now that he's sliding down my side, my knee would hit the mat. He'd slide down uh, along the side of my body and hit the mat. Nobody knew that this guy had had a couple of damn concussions during the football season. So when he bounced off the mat, he bounced and laid there. Uh, that was not my plan. My plan was to teach him not to stand on Tom Richards. Uh, and, uh, you know, so he's, he's laying on the mat, you know, I said, terms other than, oh, shit, and, you know, what the hell's going on here, you know, went through my mind. And uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, I got, quote, branded as a dirty wrestler as a result of that. And right after that, they rewrote the damn New York high school wrestling rule book that had said the man in control's knee had to touch the mat before the opponent, which is exactly what I did, uh, to the man on top must safely return the opponent to the mat. Oh. <laughs> now I suppose it's an all-girls sport. I'm not sure. You know? Yes, that shows a certain amount of uh, you know, uh, male chauvinism. You're right. <clears throat> uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I, get to the, uh, I get to the county meet, and uh, uh, I'm in the uh, you know, semifinals or something like that, and this guy, uh, I, I, guy stands up, and starts to get away from me, and I try to take him down, uh, not in the manner that I just discussed, but in just like a, a double leg takedown, and I, and I get him, and I pick him up, and he squirms away from me. I don't have control of him. He squirms away from me. Next thing I hear is a, uh, is a whistle. 
I get penalized one point because they claimed that when this guy got away from me, that I threw him down to the mat. And when he got away from me, I had managed to scramble around behind him and get control. So I should have had two points for a takedown. Long story short, the guy put on his track shoes after that, yeah, and, and the refs never called him for stalling. I chased him around the mat, yada, yada. Yeah, I'm whining, but I can say that they rewrote the New York State High School Wrestling Rule Book. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a real disappointment. But quite frankly, uh, had I – and so he, he ended up like second or third in the state that year, and I'm just saying to myself, you know, you should have been a track star, not a wrestler. But anyhow uh, – <laughs> But all, all things considered, uh, you know, I went on, uh, uh, you know, I went on to the uh, to the ROTC scholarship, and uh, had I had I gone to New York, had I won New York State, I'd have probably had any number of uh, of wrestling scholarships. So you wouldn't be talking to me today if that had happened. So you know, we're good here. <laughs> so then you so then you pick up a Reader's Digest at some point and you read an article about the SEAL teams, or was so, it about UDT? So. My father, as I said, you know, didn't have the money for uh, for a scholar, for uh, for high school or college uh, you know, tuition or anything like that. So, was your dad a vet from World War II? Yes, he was. And uh, what did he do? In he was a uh, he was a uh, a gunnery instructor, and uh, uh, he he actually never never left the United States. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the places he was stationed was uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, after I retired, I ended up working for a company in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, right on the naval base where he was uh, he was assigned. But uh, go back to uh, the, uh, the the ROTC scholarship. Uh, that's that was my uh, that was my ticket to college, my ticket into the Navy. So as I'm looking around the Navy, I'm trying to figure out what it is that I want to do. I'd been a lifeguard for years and years, and I was in you know, decent shape. I could swim, uh, and uh, so I, I, uh, I, I was. Navy, uh, you know, still had you know PT boats. Uh, you know, they were using them over there in, in Vietnam and so on. And I said, yeah, that small boat stuff. You know, sounds like you know some fun. You because know, I'd cut grass in the summertime and save money, and I bought my own uh, you know fourteen foot uh, you know boat with a uh, thirty horsepower Johnson and a, you know you know Evinrude outboard motor. And so you know, small boats were something. I said, okay, this is what I want to do. Uh, and uh, then of course. The Navy doesn't have much of an emphasis on that. And so I, I look around, I find this UDT stuff. I say, okay, that's swimming, you know, working in the, working in the, in the ocean and uh, working with demolitions. You know, that sounds you know, pretty interesting. Uh, so I say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll try for that. Uh, and then I find this, uh, this article about the, uh, about the SEALs. And I said, that really sounds interesting. I, I, I think I'd really like to do that. Uh, so I couldn't find out much about it. Uh, but uh, uh, while I was there at Villanova, I let the uh, uh, the, the staff know that uh, this is this is what I wanted to do, uh, and I made the made the application for uh, for buds and uh, and and got accepted. Well, in my junior year at Villanova, I had uh, changed majors. So in my between my junior and senior year, which would have been your first class cruise as a midshipman, uh, I ended up going to summer school and I did not make my uh, make my first class cruise. So I'm getting ready to graduate my senior year, and graduation and commissioning is uh, is held sort of simultaneously at Villanova, and uh, I uh, get called into the uh, you know. 
XO's office there at the uh, ROTC unit, and he says, uh, yeah, "I got some bad news for you, Tom. Uh, I said, you, know, you won't get commissioned here in uh, in beginning of May with everybody else because you've got to go on a uh, go on your first class cruise before you can get commissioned." Well, you're, you're not going to believe this. That's when, yeah, that's when the guy who did so well on his uh, on his uh, you know ROTC test, uh, you know, got his uh, got his brain back together and. That's the first time I learned the power of the uh, of the pen and independent thinking of the Navy. <laughs> so I write this letter to Bupers and say, "Hey, I'm going to be a frogman or I'm going to be a seal. I don't need this first class cruise." What an arrogant jackass I was! So, long story short, the Navy comes back and says, "Okay, you, <laughs> don't, you don't have to go on your first class cruise. I get commissioned with everybody, and uh, and I go out to buds." Got to back up just a little bit here. So as I'm, you know, understanding that there's a certain amount of uh, uh, swimming required and probably running and other conditioning, you know, I've I've just gone out and you know bench pressed you know 400 pounds at the uh, at the at the collegiate uh, you know weightlifting champion. And you're walking around at 245. I was walking around at 245 at that point in time, uh, and uh, you know squat you know 500 and something on you know deadlift uh, you know five and a quarter or something at that point in time long story short several years later in the career in, in my uh in once i was in the navy uh you know 10 10 years later in the navy 25 pounds lighter 30 pounds lighter i lifted more except for the bench press than i was at villanova but anyway uh so uh Nobody on the ROTC staff could tell me what I needed to do, you know, when I showed up in Coronado. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so I said, well, UDT, underwater, you know, got to be some swimming here. So, I, yeah, I jumped in the pool at Villanova about three times, maybe four. And uh, I said, well, uh, if there's going to be a lot of running involved, you know, I, you know, I started doing a little bit of road work, you know, and I, I, had, I dropped 10 or 12 pounds. And I showed up at Coronado thinking I was ready to go, right? So I show up. They give me my first uh, you know, issue of equipment, and they tell me that the, uh, the class that was in pre-training at the time is, uh, is over uh, here at the, uh, at, at the oceanfront. Go over there and tell them who you are and uh, that you're joining the class. Well, I showed up and uh, uh, walk up, and the uh, you know, instructors look at me like, who the hell are you? And uh, before they even let me take a step, they make me go get a freaking EKG because they short, thought that I was some <laughs> short, fat, you know, pile of whatever. And so here, here's another time when, uh, when you, your, your, your alligator mouth overloads your hummingbird ass. So uh, we got instructors. I don't, I don't remember if Terry Moy was there. He's a you know, legend in our time and a legend in his own mind. Uh, but Terry was, uh, was quite the guy. But there's another guy standing there, uh, your complexion, Echo, yes, and uh, he's uh, his name is Dick Allen. Dick is about 5'11". He's the All-Navy, and I think he might have been the inter-service boxing champ. And Dick was standing there at about 215, 220, and I, you know, looked at Chief Allen, and I said, you know, shit, if he can do it, I can do it. 
oh my God, that had to be one of the dumbest things that I ever said in public to anybody. So uh, 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 they, they they kicked the shit out of me. Uh, I did not pass my first screen test because, uh, like I said, I didn't even know what the screen test was. So they rolled me back to uh, from class 53 to you know, class 54. I didn't even uh, you know sign up with them. But uh, what year was this? Uh, this was 1969. So Vietnam's in full swing. Full swing. You know you're going to Vietnam if you go to a SEAL team. Absolutely. And remember, there were only two SEAL teams yeah. at the time. And I guess you, you guys were still getting orders to UDT out of BUDS, too, at that time. The majority of guys coming out of BUDS got uh, got orders to, uh, to, to UDT. Uh, and was, there, was there any – I mean, was the culture in America just so split that – you just didn't even think about like the hippies that are running around and protesting wars. Did you did you see any of those? Were those people around Villanova? Were those people in Coronado? So in my last semester at Coronado, uh, excuse me, uh, last semester at Villanova, uh, all these you know young uh, uh, politically active individuals decided that they had to make a statement. Uh, so they're holding a, uh, a, a rally and they're uh, blockading uh, yeah, access to uh, to the campus. And you know, shit. I'm one of these guys, right? You know, well, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't have the bank accounts. I didn't. I didn't go to Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands on uh, spring break. Uh, but I'm one of these guys. They know who I am because uh, I was, you know, my senior year. I was a bouncer at a couple of the bars that everybody went to. <laughs> so uh, here they are. They're having this big demonstration, and uh, I forget what particular class it was over Barclay Hall that I had. But I'm walking over to Barclay Hall, and you've got this, you know, you know, mass of students and hey, uh, campus closed. You can't go. You can't go on campus, Tom. I said, "Well, we we have one minor problem here. I've got a class in Barclay Hall right over there, and I'm going to Barclay Hall. And the, the, the only problem is that you're temporarily between me and Barclay <laughs> Hall. So what's it going to be? They stepped aside, and I went to class. It, it was it was easy. So so you had no idea what was going to happen at Buds. I had. No clue, not a clue. See, I cleaned that up pretty good. Uh, I had, uh, I had, I had uh, no no idea what it was going to be about. But uh, while I was uh, while I was at Villanova, not only did I lift at the uh, gym on base, but there was a, a YMCA in town, and I ran into this guy who claimed to be a uh, a retired you know Navy corpsman who would serve with the SEALs. Uh, can't remember his name, you know, 165-pound, uh, you know, dark-complected guy. I think he was Italian-American, whatever. And uh, we, got, we got to talking, and uh, he told me a little bit about, you know, uh, you know the war stories and, 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 and how tough it was. But one of the things that he said to me is he said, every one of those instructors is a humanoid. Every one of those instructors had done whatever it is they're about to ask you to do or what they're about to do to you. Uh, so I said to myself, I locked in my mind at that point in time, I said if that human being or that human being or even that Marine over there can do that, I can do that. So that was the mindset I went into buds with. If he can do it, I can do it. And uh, it worked. What was, a, what was, was there anything that was hard for you? <laughs> was I mean I, I, at two, was your running? Did you did you suck at running, or did you get good at it pretty quick? Uh, I, I sucked at running till graduation day. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, you know, with a you know five hundred and you know some odd pound squat, you know, going into uh, going into training, uh, I could I could I could run. Uh, I could I could do fifty or a hundred yards quick. Yeah. Uh, so when we back when I went through training, Jocko, you remember when it was hard. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, we uh, we we train on the other side, uh, uh, back where the uh, ball fields are, mm-hmm. Foreman Field is. Yep. So we'd finish up uh, our our PT on one side of Foreman Field, uh, the side away from the bay towards the ocean, and over on the on the bay side of Foreman, Foreman Field uh, was a uh, a row of uh, pull up bars and dip bars. So after PT, uh, we would go run over to those bars and do pull ups and dips. Well, the deal was the instructors would break you into groups of X amount of guys, and you would run over to the uh, to the pull-up bars. The first guy in each group got to stand there and you know scratch his ass while everybody else is in the lean and rest, punching out 20, 50, or however many push-ups. I never did push-ups after PT. I was always the first man in my running group to get over there. If it was over 100 yards... I was the last, man. <laughs> uh, but I never had to do push-ups in, uh, in that group. But uh, so uh, I don't know if we still call them goon squads. They, oh, yeah. When you went through, uh, okay, I'm sure, Jocko, I'm sure yeah. you made a uh, few of those. I made some goon squads. Yeah. <laughs> you, you probably made all of them. The deal was, and I didn't realize that the deal was with the instructor staff is that wherever Ensign Richards is, that's where we cut the goon squad. <laughs> <laughs> so one day, uh, uh, you you know of Admiral Ray Smith. He, yep. was in, uh, he was in class 54, and 54 is a class I started with. Went through third phase before I got a cellulitis infection. So yeah, I'm a man of two countries or two classes, uh, but I graduated with 55. But anyway, uh, first phase, Ray and I were, uh, you know, uh, we're on one of the conditioning runs, and we're running uh, north towards the North Island fence. And we're uh, we're just about in front of the uh, the lifeguard towers at Center Beach there in uh, in Coronado, and Ray and I were running along just having a conversation, <laughs> you know. I mean, because these conditioning runs weren't fast; uh, they were you know hard enough, but they weren't real fast. So Ray and I are running along having this conversation, and Ray looks around and he realizes, oh shit, we're we're right about here at the uh, uh, point where they're going to cut the goon squads. He says, Tom, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> And Ray literally took off at that point in time, and he was no more than 10 or 15 yards in front of me where the instructor steps in and says, all right, everybody uh, assume the position. That is push-ups because we're starting to goon squad. Boom. And so they cut the goon squad wherever I was, (laughs) except one time. So we're doing a soft sand conditioning run. This time we're going south. And uh, uh, we're running down towards the uh, towards the uh, the public beach down there, and, and that's about a uh, a three mile point. But uh, right across from the uh, uh, where the marina is, mm-hmm. there used to be a great big pile of sand, and we called that Mount Suribachi. Well, the uh, the instructors uh, would uh, take us down the soft sand road, uh, which was between the uh, the ocean front and just probably about you know thirty or forty yards in from the Strand Highway. We'd run down that soft sand road, and uh, then we get to Mount Suribachi, and we'd run around Mount Suribachi, we'd run up and over Mount Suribachi. Well, 
I got tired of all this running up and down Mount Suribachi stuff. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, I, I've I've tossed my cookies, you know, more times than I can tell you, and uh, and I am one hurting son of a gun. So they you know they go up and over Mount Suribachi. They loop around and they head on down towards the uh, towards the State Park beach there. And I don't even have the freaking class in sight, right? You know, today, today an instructor gets shot for losing track of, uh, of, of a student. But uh, they, I don't even have the class in sight. So the class goes down, and I know what, I know what the run is for the day. So they're going to come back. So I just you know, loop around Suribachi real nice and easy this time. <laughs> loop around Suribachi. The class comes back. I loop around in the back of the class, and, and it just worked out. The, the instructors were looking forward as I came up, and the goon squad had already been cut down by the state, uh, state park. So I'm, I, I, as I had caught up to the class, uh, this uh, great big uh, instructor uh, by the name of Trax, Bear Trax, uh, Williams, uh, looks over the class, and he sees me as the last man in the formation. And he looks at me, <laughs> and he says, Ensign Richards, I don't know how you got to be here. I do know you're not supposed to be here. But somehow you did it, so I'm going to let you stay here. And that is the only goon squad I ever missed. Uh, how many... So I guess you said you were in '54. That's who you went through Hell Week with, right? I went, th- I went through uh, yeah, Hell Week, uh, and diving phase was the third phase at, mm-hmm. at that point in time. So I went already all the way all the way into the second phase of diving week before I got a cellulitis infection that actually hospitalized me. What do you? How many people quit during Hell Week? We started with slightly over. Uh, slightly over 200 guys in class 54 and we ended up with uh, right around 52 54 guys uh, you know graduating out of 54 so we lost 150 guys just ringing out ring ringing that bell kind of crazy and then did you said at this time some guys would get orders to UDT some guys would get orders to SEAL team it seemed like at one point it was you were going to go to UDT most likely. And yes. a couple guys would go to SEAL team. And That's you correct. ended up getting orders to SEAL team? Yes. Uh, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, that was no accident because what I did is uh, I realized that the situation is just as you expressed uh, and that it, only a few guys ended up going to the SEAL teams. Well, uh, I uh, petitioned a couple of the, uh, of the instructors uh, that, uh, hey, I really want to go to SEAL team. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of them was a, uh, uh, a highly decorated, uh, uh, SEAL chief by the name of, uh, you know, Tommy Hatchett. I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, uh, but, uh, Tom was, uh, was one of the few black guys we had in the teams at the time. And I went up to, uh, to, to Chief Hatchett and I said, you know, Chief, uh, uh, I really want to go to you know, go to SEAL Team One. I, th- I said I think that's where I belong, and uh, I went up to a couple of other of the instructors. And, and now at this point in time, uh, Chief Hatchet was uh, uh, Chief Hatchet was in uh, second phase, and I'm in third phase. But you know, I, I went to those guys because uh, second phase, of course, not of course, second phase was land warfare, and those are the uh, the, the, the SEAL guys. And I said, you know, you know this is this is what I want to do. And, and uh, obviously, that must have said something to somebody because uh, because uh, they let me go. So you show up to SEAL Team let, One. Let, let, Go ahead. Let, let's back up. I want to yeah. tell I want to tell two training stories here. Hundred uh, percent. In uh, uh, 
different different hell weeks have uh, have different uh, layouts and you know what's done when uh, because of course the, uh, the the students you know learn too much about what's coming up uh, next and uh, and they can sort of you know get their minds uh, get their minds around it so uh, when uh, Admiral Smith and I went through training together. Uh, one of the events that they did was, uh, you know, I don't know what they called it, but let's call it the last man standing. That is, they drew a circle in the sand, put the class inside the circle, and said that the last guy inside the circle gets X number of points for his, uh, for his boat team. Well, uh, you know, Ray Smith was a, uh, was a boxing champion at the, at the Naval Academy. Uh, I, Jesus, I want to say... Uh, uh, he he was a uh, he was a weight man. That is, he threw uh, uh, through the uh, the hammer or something like that. Uh, <clears throat> so Ray was a pretty pretty strong guy. Ray was about two hundred pounds, maybe two hundred five at the most, maybe buck ninety five. So he was Ray, taller too, right? Yeah, about my height. Oh, really? Yeah, might have been just a little bit taller. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, because he, he, he did look kind of skinny yeah, next to lanky, me. Yeah, so he, he, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 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 Ray and I went up to each other and we said, "Hey, let's let, let's make this easy on ourselves. We'll throw everybody else out of the circle, and it'll be you and I, and see who gets the points of the book group." That's exactly what we did. We threw those other fifty suckers out of the uh, <laughs> out of the circle, and uh, came down to Ray and I wrestling on the ground, and I'm trying to you know, pick them up and throw them out of the circle. When uh, you know, instructor Moy sees that I've I've raised my head to you know see where the line is and where I've got uh, where I've got Ray, so I can you know toss them out of there. And just as I raised my head, instructor Moy had a IBS paddle full of sand and <laughs> threw it in my face. You know, basically, I had eyes, ears, nose, and mouth full of sand, and uh, quite frankly, I thought I was blinded. Uh, but uh, the uh, the students say that after I roared at Instructor Moy that I only missed them by a couple of steps because I, I, I said, screw, screw it, screw it, Lieutenant J.G. Smith, I'm going after that son of a bitch who just filled my face full of sand. Uh, I missed I missed the instructor, uh, and they had one of the guys take me down the water and clear me out. And I, you know, the crappy thing is that Ray Smith didn't even get the points for his boat crew uh, because uh, he didn't throw me out. I uh, I left of my own accord. <laughs> so fast forward twenty some odd years, I'm now the uh, the skipper of uh, of buds, and. Uh, uh, Ray is uh, is the admiral in charge of uh, uh, Naval Special Warfare Command, and uh, Ray and his wife Kathy are living across the street on the amphib base, and uh, Ray's son is going through SEAL training. So uh, Ray, uh, you know, we have the we have the breakout, and uh, you know, some people. Uh, the breakout includes uh, uh, busting the students out of the barracks giving them all sorts of confusing directions and things to do. Uh, there's also instructors firing blanks from M60 machine guns, uh, using uh, you know, flashbangs, which are a very bright, very loud uh, explosive simulator to disorient the students. And yet here, you know, a couple of hundred yards away on the other side of the Strand Highway is Navy housing. So usually that Sunday night when we started Hell Week, we the phones lit up, and uh, one night it was Admiral Smith's wife, Kathy, complaining to Ray, you know, what is Tom doing to those boys? <laughs> <laughs> so as their son goes through training, uh, 
I was, you know, particularly careful to make sure that uh, that I did not single, uh, you know, him out. But uh, I was was also, uh, you know, attentive to the fact that, you know, sometimes uh, the son of we call him Legacy is going through training, uh, just like they did in what was that uh, what was that movie. Uh, uh, Animal House, uh, you know, <laughs> legacies. Uh, but uh, we we wanted to make sure that uh, you know if somebody's father had been uh, jackass of the week to one of the uh, the instructors that 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 didn't carry over and taint his uh, son's attempt to get through training. But anyway, I remember uh, remember Ray coming, you know, telling me the story about. Ray, do you realize what they're doing to these boys? <laughs> I'm sorry, Kathy, if you hear this, but uh, Ray was Ray was concerned about, or Kathy was concerned about her son. Ray and Kathy were married when when Ray and I went through training, but you know Ray obviously did a phenomenal job of not you know telling Kathy about what <laughs> how bad his day was. Yeah, that's a hard thing to camouflage too, because you're coming home with you chafing and you're bruised up and oh, beat yeah. up. You've got cuts and nicks all over your body, and sw- your ankles and knees are swelled up. It's pretty a- savage. A- absolutely, but uh, you know Kathy obviously didn't appreciate what Ray was going through when he went through training. So we get through Nate's first phase he makes it uh, makes it through hell week and well not quite uh, so when Ray and I went through training hell week secured on Saturday morning not that you had it easy Jocko I understand <laughs> 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 training training secured on Saturday morning well uh, when I was the, uh, the skipper of the center uh, training secured on Friday morning he got a whole 24 hours off so uh, the uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, guys learn you know tricks about what happens at what point in time during Hell Week, and so the classes had uh, come to understand that okay, around ten, ten thirty, maybe eleven o'clock on Friday, they're going to secure you, you know, because the corpsman got to give you a check, and then uh, you know they got to you know, got to make sure that we get anybody over to Balboa who needs to go to Balboa. That's Balboa Naval Hospital. Uh, but, uh, you know, of course, the instructors want to get off by uh, by 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So we've got to secure everybody early enough. So the students knew this. So the students, uh, you know, so I, I, I get the instructor staff together. And I say, this is what we're going to do. The students think that at the end of this particular evolution, their week is over. So when they get when you get them lined up here, they're thinking – we're done. So we're not done. <laughs> so what I did is I went out to, you know, they thought I was coming over the, uh, coming over the dune to these guys lined up by the, uh, by the ocean that I was going to secure training, uh, secure, secure Hell Week. Secure means to uh, you know, finish it up, close it down. So I come over the, uh, come over the, uh, the berm, and I walk down to the class, and I start to engage Ensign Smith in conversation. Along the lines of, you know, Ensign Smith, you, you rem- probably remember stories of your father that he and I went through, uh, through Bud's together. And everybody is a soup sandwich at the end of Hell Week, whether it's Friday morning, <laughs> whether it's Friday morning or Saturday morning. Everybody's a soup sandwich. Ensign Smith was no better. And he has no idea what the hell I'm talking about. He just knows that they're standing there getting ready to get secured. So I said, Ensign Smith, uh, do you recall that uh, when your dad and I went through SEAL training, uh, SEAL training didn't secure until Saturday morning. This is only this is only you know ten thirty Friday morning. I guess you guys got another twenty four hours. And I turned around and I left. I did not secure Hell Week. We got all these kids thinking we're done. We've made it. 
Maybe I can get a hot shower. I can't take another step if I had to. And there's guys with tears running down their faces. Uh, and they turn to, turn to each other. I, I, I can't do it. I, 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 can't, I can't make another 24 hours. So the deal I had with the instructor staff was, okay, they you know, you know, muster the kids up and you know, off they go on, a, uh, on, a, on an IBS carry towards the, uh, towards the rocks in front of the Hotel Dell. And uh, what I wanted them to do was to suck it up and do whatever was necessary. And so these kids sucked it up and they went down to the uh, to the hotel Dell and came back, and I secured him. And when I secured him, I said, "This is a lesson you're probably never going to forget in your life. You thought that this was going to happen. That is, Hell Week was going to be secured an hour ago. It didn't happen. You needed to suck it up and figure out what to do." At that point in time, and maybe it still goes on today, but classes uh, would uh, have a T-shirt made for uh, for their class, and there'd be some kind of a cartoon or caricature on it, and a uh, and a saying. Well, that class's saying was, "It isn't over till it's over," and every one of them, uh, every one of them learned a lesson. Not only in that class, but for the next several classes, they didn't know what was going to happen. That was my objective. Keep them confused. Keep them confused. Something else I did when I was a CEO of Buds uh, was establish something called the Junior Officer Training Course. Mm-hmm. Now, as we all know today, uh, SEAL training is broken into several sections, but two distinct sections. The first approximate six months is equal to what I did back when I went through training. The second six months where you earn your qualification as a SEAL, uh, is more advanced training. Uh, in, in my day, uh, they had something called SEAL basic indoctrination training. That is, you would get to the SEAL team, you would go through this five or six weeks of advanced training, which is what today's second six months is. Uh, you would go through that next six weeks or so of advanced training and the decision would be made whether or not the commanding officer was going to recommend you for your trident or you to become a SEAL. Uh, when I graduated from SEAL training, me and X number of guys, as we discussed a few moments ago, went directly to SEAL Team 1. A bunch of guys went to UDTs 11 and 12. Uh, 13 was still around then too. So, uh, what happened was those friendships that you, and believe me, as you know, Jocko, and I'm sure you guys understand, there are no tighter associations or friendships than you form when you go through BUDS training. So what would happen was naturally when you get a bunch of guys, 10 or 15 guys from a particular class going to a particular team, they tend to hang out together to include the junior officers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, you know, uh, Naval Special Warfare is probably one of the few organizations where there are a lot of close friends between the officers and the enlisted, and I mean really close friends. First name basis, you name it. Uh, you know, grand, you know, you know uh, godparents to kids, you name it. Um, it's a close association. What I wanted to do was I wanted to break that bond. I wanted to break that dependency. I wanted those junior officers to have to go to a team and stand on their own, not be able to lean on a bunch of guys uh, that they had gone through training with. They were now 
officers. They were now going to have to make some significant decisions that would potentially affect some of their fellow classmates. They were always officers, if you will, and you know going through training that officers were uh, assigned uh, more responsibilities and leaned on harder than the uh, than some of the troops. But I wanted to give these guys not only separation, but I want to give them some tools to work with. So uh, I started at that point in time what I called the junior officer training class. Uh, and it was only uh, two and a half or three weeks at the, at the outset. I don't know what it is today. Uh, but we set that, set that program up for, for two reasons. Leadership training, uh, you know, uh, management, uh, you know, uh, you know, training, uh, exposure to, uh, to other, other factors about the Navy other than Bud's training. So uh, I, I, I set that up, and, and now that junior officer training is, is part of that uh, second six months of, uh, of, uh, of, the, of the BUDS training. Uh, but uh, I, feel, I feel proud of the fact that that still exists, and, and, I, and of course it's part of that evolution of training that is naturally going to happen. But uh, it was uh, one, of the, uh, one of the best things that I thought that I did uh, while I was the CEO of BUDS. Yeah, and just it's expanded a ton. I, I know my, my buddy Leif was actually, when we got home from our last deployment together, he took over the that Jotsi course, expanded it. We started, he started taking guys out in the field. We really focused on leadership, and I think it by, by the time he was done, I think it was out to maybe six weeks, and just trying to make it more more comprehensive and get the guys more prepared for when they do show up at a SEAL team. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's still there. Yeah. We put together a, uh, a reading list, uh, you know, and uh, we uh, – not just so that uh, guys that have a list to refer to, we uh, we made everybody take a book and uh, provide a, uh, a summary. Uh, I forget the name of the uh, the young ensign who uh, took uh, Dick Marcinko's first book, uh, Rogue Warrior. And before I say anything else, uh, sorry to see that uh, Dick has passed. Uh, he was a uh, a very influential individual in the development of. Uh, Development group, SEAL Team Six, whatever they, whatever they're called today. Uh, although you know, Dick did things his own way, uh, you know, ruffled a few feathers in the process. Uh, I have nothing but the greatest personal respect for Dick Marcinko. So Dick gets out of the Navy after a uh, uh, some kind of a uh, felony conviction. Uh, Tom Richards personally feels that you know, I don't think. I don't think Dick Marcinko would do anything, like, you know, of a felony nature. It just that's just not who Dick was. Dick could be a royal pain in the ass, and uh, you know, you, you you name it. But uh, uh, you know, Dick Dick got some things done. So anyway, he writes this book, Rogue Warrior, uh, first of his books, and uh, in it he reveals a number of things that were probably uh, you know you know classified at the time and. But he he just uh, you know served some time and I think uh, I think he retired as a commander. Uh, I'm not sure what uh, what happened to him. He had, he had he had been promoted to captain, but in any event, uh, the uh, the Navy decided not to uh, slap his wrist about some of the things that were in the book. Uh, but you can tell reading the book uh, that. Uh, Dick had not separated from the Navy on the greatest of terms. Uh, and so uh, this young junior officer who was the first guy to review Dick's book titles his book review Rogue Whiner as opposed to Rogue Warrior. 
uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll never forget that uh, that that incident. And uh, he had he he noted some of the things that uh, Dick said, and he saw some of the uh, the, the way that Dick was, uh, you know, poking his finger back in the eye of the United States Navy. Kid did a very good uh, very good job, and of course that's exactly what Dick was doing, saying "fuck you" to the United States Navy because uh, you know Dick, uh, well that's who Dick was. That was a uh, junior officer training course was a uh, was something that I was really proud of. So you obviously at the end of buds for you you didn't have junior officer training course you just showed up to the SEAL team and that's why that's why I created that junior officer training course because I I saw what I was missing I mean I walk into a team and now I've got a uh, you know how many years did you had uh, before you got commissioned Jocko I had eight eight yep. years here I go. You know, wet behind the ears, uh, you know, ensign, and I'm walking in, and I've got to be the guy in charge of guys like Jocko, who's got eight years under his belt, or uh, in in my SEAL platoon, we had uh, uh, Jack Schultz, and uh, who was the uh, Randy Sheridan, two uh, two first class. I think Jack made chief during that period of time, you know. I really should have been in a learning mode as opposed to a leading mode at that point in time. And I learned as much as I could from those guys. Uh, so, again, that, that goes back to uh, the, the, whole, uh, the whole premise of that uh, JOTC. So, so you graduate from BUDS. Now it's just checking into SEAL Team. How many guys from your class went to SEAL Team 1? I don't remember, uh, you know, uh, it was Gary Stubblefield, uh, you know, best man at my wedding and so on. Uh, and uh, he and I deployed to Vietnam shortly thereafter. Was it, Jim was it 1970 when you graduated? Right. I graduated in, in April of uh, April of 1970. Uh, uh, that was 55. Class 54 graduated in February. Uh, and uh, uh, Gary was from 54. Uh there were there were half a dozen of us, maybe uh, mm-hmm. no more than a dozen now uh, that went to uh, to Team One, and uh, you know right into uh, right into platoons, uh, right into pre deployment training, and boom, gone. I know I, I talked to some of the guys from Vietnam, and they said when they checked into Team One, I remember one guy telling me like you got in the shower, you know after a PT or something, and he's looking at every everybody's like shot up, everybody's wounded. It just. Uh, so much combat for those guys back in that time. And the SEAL team, SEAL team one and SEAL team two, that's it for the SEAL teams. And there's, what'd you have, 150 guys at the team? Thereabouts. Uh, that, that's, a, uh, that's a good number. Uh, and uh, we, had, uh, we had situations in, uh, uh, at SEAL team one where a platoon uh, uh, would be uh, you know, you know, scheduled to uh, uh, you know, come back from a, uh, from a deployment and the deploying platoon is headed on over there and uh, and maybe they uh, they hook up in the Philippines where a couple of guys from that platoon that was supposedly coming back to the states a couple of those guys would augment that platoon and go right uh, go right back in country uh, there were there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of deployments like that and uh, and a lot of a lot of hard men how long did it take for you to get your training? So you went through SBI and SBI you said was like eight weeks long uh, about uh, probably closer to six uh, and uh, and that must have just been straight just jungle training. Uh, jungle training. Uh, you remember Nyland uh, oh, yeah. out there in California and the Salton Sea and the uh, the uh, uh, 
irrigation uh, you mm-hmm. know, canals and so on that feed into that provided some really uh, you know, interesting terrain. And, of course, it's the frickin' desert, so <laughs> it's hot. Uh, so it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a really good place to train. And then, you, and then at the end of SBI, that's when you get your trident? Right. And then you get put into a platoon. Absolutely, and uh, at, at that point in time, you, you were going into a platoon, and the uh, uh, the challenge for the CO and XO at the time, of course, is okay. What's the uh, the makeup of the platoon? Uh, we uh, normally want to have a uh, an officer making a second deployment, uh, and uh, then you've got uh, you know, a couple of a uh, couple of senior enlisted, uh, and maybe uh, a couple of uh, junior enlisted. Senior enlisted might be on their third trip. The junior guys might be on their uh, on their second. <clears throat> but we had a uh, uh, we had a a, a green platoon. Uh, uh, Grant Telfer was a, a surface warfare officer uh, before he went through training, and he started training as a lieutenant. So, uh, and I don't remember how many uh, you know how many uh, years senior to me he was, uh, but he started training as a lieutenant. Uh, and uh, uh, was he, that his first platoon as well? Exactly. Oh wow! Uh, he 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 and I graduated in class fifty five. Oh, okay. So uh, the uh, XO called me in and uh, you know asked if. Uh, uh, asked if I uh, wanted to be uh, the uh, AOIC in, uh, in Grant's platoon. And I said, sure, uh, that, that gets, me, uh, get, it gets me where I want to go sooner than it normally would have. So you bet. And as I said, we had uh, Jack Schultz, who uh, later got commissioned, retired as a commander out of uh, the dev group. Uh, and uh, Randy Sheridan, uh, who uh, got wounded, and, uh, and I think he was medically retired. Uh, uh, from uh, from a, you know, an action in, uh, uh, in in Vietnam with uh, with the platoon, uh, Randall Hedge, uh, and I think Moses Marquez were the other two guys who had uh, prior uh, prior deployments. So we out of out of fourteen guys, uh, ten of us were FNGs. So you do a workup, and you're preparing to go now. Now you're together with your platoon, and how long is that? Do you spend six months? Like nowadays, we do. Oh. No, uh, in in that case, as I said, so I got I got there in April. We deployed in the end of August. I got there in April. We went through SBI. Yeah, doing the math. Oh, yeah, I, I, I go I go through SBI and finish up SBI, and they're putting together this platoon, Zulu platoon, and uh, then we we get Zulu platoon put together. And we go right into uh, right into pre deployment training. So uh, and it was only X number of weeks. Uh, you know, a couple of months because uh, we had to you know, finish up uh, you know, with enough time to give give guys a, uh, a week or 10 days off before uh, deploying just to you know, take care of business. Uh, so it was it was a pretty uh, you know slam bam situation. But you had the the awesome thing is you had guys coming back from Vietnam that were running your training for your platoon. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the uh, SBI program. Uh, when I went through, it was uh, run by uh, guys like uh, uh, Master Chief Al Huey uh, and uh, you know, Uncle Al. Uh, Master Chief Al Huey was a uh, was a fantastic individual. I don't think I ever heard him raise his voice, <laughs> and I don't think I ever saw anybody working for him not do exactly what the hell they were told to do. Uh, he was he was a piece of work. I remember I remember working with Al later in life, and it was just uh, just a pleasure. But uh, Al. Uh, Gary Gallagher, uh, you know Gary. I, I just know these names. Okay, Gary Gallagher, nickname Muncher. Uh, 
<laughs> Navy judo champion. Ooh. He's one of the instructors. So we set up this uh, this event where we're supposed to uh, take down a hooch. We're supposed to enter it, search it, and uh, if there's anybody in there, you know, take them hostage and uh, you know, search for whatever uh, might be there. So we go to the uh, we go to the hooch and uh, uh, we we set up. I'm I'm on the outside of the door and I'm I'm facing away from the hooch just uh, as security just in case somebody comes up while the guys are inside. Well, the bad guy in there is Muncher. <laughs> Muncher is 200 pounds. Like I say, all Navy judo champion, right? Muncher throws a couple of guys away in the uh, in the inside of the uh, inside of the hooch. He comes blasting out the door. The Hulk is on his knees. You know, you know, there to uh, to provide security. I got my my my, my weapon, uh, yeah, at the ready. And as Al Huey ripped on uh, <laughs> Chief Gallagher, you let that two hundred and twenty pound ensign who was on his knees catch you <laughs> and wrap you up. Because <laughs> I mean, I caught him from behind. I caught Gallagher from behind and just uh, you know, wrapped them up in a nice, neat package. And uh, Master Chief Huey had a uh, had a blast with that. But uh, yeah. but lesson learned, you know. There there we go. Here's this uh, here's this bleeder coming out, and uh, you know you got to be prepared for uh, for those uh, for those bleeders coming out. And you guys were real. Uh, there was no other mission that you were looking to do. Other, you know, you're going to Vietnam, and that's just 100 percent of the focus. Complete. Uh, I mean, when you look at the uh, the mission focus that the, the SEAL platoons have today, uh, the breadth of uh, the breadth of the uh, the type of missions they can get, you know, uh, like uh, yeah, interdiction at sea, taking down a ship at sea. I never thought of that. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I wouldn't have had a clue of how to do it. Yeah, I'm sure uh, as our guys have done today, we've clearly figured out how to do that, uh, and, and, and those type of things. No, yeah, we uh, we were uh, we were focused on one thing. We were created by President Kennedy to do that. Mm-hmm. And did you always carry a stoner? Right, that was my that was my weapon in the field. Uh, and even when you were telling that story, you you were throwing linked five five six ammo to two other guys. Right. So how many stoners did you have in that squad? Uh, let me see. Where Gary and uh, Gary and Wendell might have been the only other, because uh, I think uh, yeah, I think Gary and Wendell were probably the only other two guys. The rest of the guys had uh, yeah, M sixteen or M sixteen mm-hmm. variants. But the important part of that is, and one of the reasons why uh, multiple guys were carrying stoners is so that you had that ammunition interoperability. And you know, my uh, the receiver group of my weapon took four rounds. Uh, and the and the guy said if if uh, if that stoner hadn't been across my chest where it was I'd have been I'd have had four holes I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be here having that conversation today so my gun was an inoperable model uh, but as I said I carried you know, anywhere from a thousand twelve hundred rounds on a uh, on an op and uh, I had I had plenty to give away when you, so when you guys so you guys get done with deployment and now you're going you're flying over to Vietnam do you guys fly commercial over to Vietnam how'd you get over there. <laughs> Fly commercial no, my ass. All, yeah, all kinds of SOG guys flew over there. All, a lot of Army replacements, they flew over there commercial air. Or I guess it was chartered flights. That's what it was. Chartered so the regular flights. Army guys would fly over there in commercial flights. We, we flew over in, I believe, what might have been the last United States Navy C-118, I believe it was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were going to go to Hawaii, from Hawaii to the PI, and then to, uh, and then to uh, you know, Tonsonut Airport in, uh, in Saigon. 
So <clears throat> as Navy pilots would have the habit of doing, ah, shucks, we got the Hawaiian Broke down. Broke down for a few days. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, none of us, you know, none of us were rich at the time, uh, or now. But uh, you know, I had uh, I had a few bucks and uh, you know managed to waste it. Uh, but I also uh, you know was able to distribute a few bucks to some of the other guys in the platoon because we had no money. We didn't figure we were going to be anywhere. We were going to have to pay for anything or have a chance to go buy a beer. Uh, but uh, you know, we uh, we broke down in uh, broke down in Hawaii, and uh, <laughs> that's where that's where Grant Telfer showed us his uh, his uh, palm tree climbing skills to go up and uh, you know pick a coconut. <laughs> and then from there you go. Did you stop in the PI? Um, we did. And then from there you get into Vietnam. What what's the what, what's what's it like when you hit the ground in Vietnam? Hotter than I could have imagined. We're talking August in in, in Vietnam, and uh, yeah, I, I didn't grow up with uh, with air conditioning, but I grew up on Long Island, and you had the Long Island Sound on one side, and you had the Atlantic Ocean on the other side, so it never got really got you know particularly hot. Uh, so uh, you know the uh, uh, going through uh, going through training in the summer in Coronado was as hot as I'd ever been before I got to uh, before I got to Vietnam, and uh, it was just hot. Humid, muggy, uh, and uh, a uh, a hyperkinetic level of activity like it's hard to describe. Mm-hmm. So, what was your where were you, where were you located? Uh, we uh, we spent a few days in Saigon, and uh, then we were shipped down to uh, uh, the the very southern tip of, uh, of Vietnam. If you look at Vietnam on a map, there's kind of like a little tail, kind of like the uh, the Keys in uh, in Florida. Well, there's a little tail down there in uh, uh, the very bottom part of uh, of Vietnam, and we were on the uh, we were on something called the Kulan River down there. And did you have another platoon with you, or is it just Zulu? <clears throat> there were several platoons, uh, you know, cycling through there. What we had was something called Sea uh, Float, and Sea Float was a series of barges lashed together in the uh, in the river uh, with uh, detachments of uh, you know patrol boats operating from there and SEAL platoons operating from uh, uh, from the. Uh, from the barges shortly after we got there and, and when we arrived they had already started building a uh, a uh, a short airstrip uh and some uh oh, what do they call them sea huts uh you know uh, you know plywood and uh you know screen sides mm-hmm. and uh, you know you know didn't do much more than uh, block the rain of course there was no no ac and what was the mission set you guys were given we were we were there to uh, to look for uh, for VC uh, you know, VC tax collectors uh, you know anybody uh, you know, infiltrating that uh, that part of the world gather the intelligence try to find out who these folks were where they were and go after them uh, we did uh, <clears throat> we we did specific uh, ops going in for an individual at a location uh, we did things like. Uh, Going out in uh, sampans, patrolling at night, looking for the uh, for the VC tax collectors. Uh, you're trying to hit up the uh, the locals. Uh, we'd sit on uh, sit on uh, you know riverside ambushes. Uh, you know, looking for these guys. Uh, I missed a particular uh, operation, but uh, uh, Grant uh, Grant Telfer's squad had a uh, 
had a phenomenal app, uh, you know, based on some intelligence that we generated. Uh, and again, uh, you know, Jack Schultz uh, uh, would uh, would go off, uh, you know, uh, checking with uh, the PRUs, the uh, the advisors, and you know, looking for you know bits and pieces of intelligence. And uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the coups that uh, they came up with was a uh, a weapons storage facility uh, not too far from uh, uh, from where Solid Anchor was located down there in the uh, Namcan province. At that point in time, our squad was up at a place called Damdoyer, you know, 25, 30 miles up the river or something like that, uh, and operating out of, out of there. We thought, uh, you know, it might be some virgin territory. We could uh, go find some bad guys. But while we were up there, uh, you know, Grant and uh, the other guys found this, uh, you know, one of the largest uh, ammo caches, uh, you know, VC ammo caches located in the, in the, in the war. Yeah. What was your op tempo like? How often were you guys going out? I've heard, didn't, didn't they sometimes rotate squad one tonight, squad two tomorrow night, and then go back and forth? Absolutely. Uh, and sometimes if you if you didn't have something to work with, uh, you know, it might be every, every third day. It might be every fourth day. Uh, but, uh, oh, boy, uh, we had a... Uh, we had a, a little uh, sign hanging on the uh, on the uh, on the outside of the hooch. I, no, actually, that uh, that's that you know where you draw the little lines and then a slash through it. And, you know, five. Uh, those are the uh, those were the, that was a uh, tally of the, what we of the of the known KIAs. Uh, I, I I really don't remember the uh, the total number of ops that we did in that uh, in that six months. Mm-hmm. But it was a but it was a heavy op tempo. You were working a lot. It it, it was it was heavy enough. Yeah, I, I I would not have wanted to have to go out more often than that. Uh, you come back. Yeah, I mean, because you go out and you completely break your uh, circadian rhythms. Uh, you know, you you go out you go out at night and you're you're exhausted. You're slogging through uh, through you know, ankle knee deep uh, you know mud carrying you know, 50, 60 pounds of uh, of gear, and if you, uh, you 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 patrol you know. Five, ten uh, clicks, fifteen clicks, doing that stuff. You're a whipped puppy, and uh, it, it takes a couple of days to respond because you don't want to go out tired, and you don't want to go out not fresh because if you do, somebody's gonna die. So you had? Would you guys have? Did you guys have fourteen men in your platoon? Exactly, or? fourteen guys. So had, the squads you're going out with was seven. Seven, six, five, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever we felt was uh, necessary. We uh, we were sitting down there at uh, on the on solid anchor, and we were routinely getting mortared, uh, you know, from some place, you know, a few clicks uh, to the east and a few clicks north. So uh, what you do is you, you look at the uh, at the impact of the mortar, and you can tell by the uh, the size of the hole that the mortar makes whether it's a uh, uh, you know, fifty one or eighty two millimeter mortar. That's the the bad guys did the eighty two. We had eighty ones, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. It's been a while. Uh, so you can tell by the size of the uh, of, of the crater what what uh, what size mortar it was and that told you the uh, the maximum range of the mortar and again again looking at the crater you could also tell if it was a uh, if it was a high angle shot coming down from a you know, short range or, or and so you could you could kind of figure out that range and then of course the orientation of the of the crater from the impact tells you the uh, the azimuth the back azimuth where it's coming 
So we kind of did that, and we said, okay, they're probably coming right down this here river and setting up about here. So we went out early and set up further so that they'd have to come down in front of us. Uh, you know, we were tired of having card games interrupted by a mortar attack, you know? So uh, we... Uh, <laughs> Quite frankly, that's true. There were several mortar attacks where we were out of that out of that card game and into the uh, into the bomb shelter before the frickin' cards hit the floor. I'm telling you. Uh, but so we went up there to uh, to try to intercept this uh, this mortar crew, and uh, of course you want to be careful and uh, not tip your hand with uh, with any kind of a, uh, VR visual reconnaissance of the uh, of the area. So we. We did a VR, and then we came. And then we set the op a, a few a few days later. But the canopy was so hard, what we missed was another trail on the river. So we set up X number of yards off the river, so we'd have a field of fire on the river because we figured they were coming down the river. Oh no. These boys are coming down this well-worn track behind us, you know, you know, whistling Dixie or whatever the uh, Vietnamese were uh, were doing there. You know, all of a sudden, we're sitting here facing the river, and we hear this chatter going on behind us as these guys are walking behind us with the uh, with the with the mortar, and we couldn't we couldn't do anything. That is, if we started to make the noise to shift. And try to take them uh, under fire. We'd have given uh, these guys are walking down the trail with their with their guns in their hands. You know, we're sitting there, uh, sitting there, lying there, kneeling there. Uh, you know, in position facing yeah. the river with so, their guns pointing in the wrong direction. Guns pointing in the wrong direction. So we'd have, we'd have made a hell of a lot of racket, and we'd have you know taken some hits. So we call off the mission, and uh, you know later on we uh, were. Uh, we're in our own sampans paddling back to uh, uh, back to solid anchor, and you look off in the distance and you see this flash. Well, the the Vietnamese had a uh, 105 millimeter battery across the river from, from solid anchor, and uh, we also had a uh, a shared TOC, you know, tactical operations center. And before we went out, we put in a designated no fire zone. So we're paddling our sandpans back down the uh, the river, and I see these flashes, and because of the angle of the flash, you know it's headed in your frickin' direction. And you know, I said, well, it's not gonna be anywhere near us. All of a sudden, there's an airburst almost directly above us. And then a few more airbursts, you know, up and down the river where we are. I get on that radio and, and I, you know, to the uh, U.S. side of the talk, you know, cease fire. Probably said a few things in the, on the air that I shouldn't have said, but I said, cease fire. They cease fire. Uh, and uh, and I got back to the talk, and, and, and I'm a JG. I had this fucking lieutenant about uh, hanging from the rafters as I was explaining to him, you know, how he almost, how he almost, you know, killed some of us. I could not believe you could see, you could see the shrapnel peppering the water all around us. Nobody got hit. I don't know how that happened. Another lucky day on the ranch. Uh, how often would you say you guys would get in enemy contact when you guys went out? I don't want um, the kind of guy I am. Not enough. 
Uh, yeah, we went over there to kill bad guys, you know. Uh, these people had caused the United States of America to get into a shooting war over here. And so my job was to kill the bad guys. And uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't have enough contact as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know uh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish up with another thought on that. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what I signed up to do. And if the nation comes to a point where that needs to be done, send me, Coach. You know, that's, 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 that's who is in the SEAL teams. That's why you have SEAL teams, special forces, Green Berets, Air Force Special Operations guys. These guys, you know, send me, Coach. That's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. So as you got towards, because the, the event that we started off talking about, that was one of the last operations that you guys were scheduled to do. Is that right? Absolutely. We had uh, we had deployed in uh, in in August of seventy, and uh, we were you know scheduled to uh, to come back the uh, beginning of February of seventy one, and and uh, and my squad had uh, you know started uh, you know you know cleaning the gear and preparing the gear to pack it up and uh, and, and send it home, because uh, one of the last things you have to do is is, is clean everything because it's going to be inspected to make sure you're not bringing uh, back any uh, particular mud, flora, fauna, or whatever from uh, from overseas. So you, you got it. Takes a while to prepare. We'd started that process in my squad, and Grant uh, Grant wanted to ha- do one more operation. And uh, since it was Grant uh, with whether whatever information he had had, I wasn't paying attention to it. Uh, uh, I was working with my guys, getting ready, getting ready to come home. But his operation didn't quite go as he planned, because he flew. They, they got contacted in the helicopters. They they took fire on the way into the area where they were going to go, uh, and that's when uh, Marcus Arroyo got shot in the shoulder and wounded seriously enough to end up uh, being medically retired. So they the, they so Squad One goes out to execute this mission. As they're flying into this LZ, they take fire. Arroyo gets wounded. It's bad enough that they can't, they have, they have to abort the mission. They come back to base. They come back to base and uh, you know, they take Marcus off the, uh, the plane, our corpsman, uh, you know, Doc Harris, Tom Harris, who's on his deathbed. Uh, Tom Harris takes uh, Marcus down to, you know, we had a, call it a sick bay, not much more than that, uh, there at Solid Anchor. And Tom is monitoring uh, you know, what's going on with Marcus. Uh, Doc Harris was, uh, excuse me, Marcus was uh, uh, the uh, radioman for that that squad. Uh, Doc Harris was the other radioman, the other radioman in the platoon. Uh, Doc Harris is taking care of uh, Marcus Arroyo, and uh, uh, so uh, Grant needed a radioman, and so. Uh, my basic thought is, it's not smart to go back. Grant wanted to go back. Uh, and I said, well, you're going back. Someone's going to have to carry your ass out of the rice paddy. I'll carry the radio. Uh, words to, uh, words to that effect. Uh, and, uh, we, uh, you know, it wasn't too, you know, to, to grant, uh, in, I don't want to say in defense, but, you know, in Grant's thought process, it wasn't exactly where he was going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so anyway, we go back to that area and, uh, we, uh, we took fire as we were coming in, and uh, we uh, uh, we we landed, and you know, we went up a rice paddy over one and up the next, and uh, 
<clears throat> we were, as I say, taking fire almost immediately. But when we went up that uh, third uh, section of rice paddy, uh, we were just uh, we were just in a kill zone. Had you guys had anyone wounded prior to that? Yes. Uh, uh, Randy uh, Randy Sheridan had been uh, seriously wounded. Uh, uh, he uh, he basically lost his elbow uh, as a result of the wound that he got on on one of my squad operations. Uh, had you guys had anyone killed in your platoon? No. Oh yeah, and uh, you know, you know, I feel fortunate to be able to talk about the operation from thirty one uh, January uh, nineteen seventy thirty January nineteen seventy one. Uh, because nobody was killed uh, with that number of bad guys, uh, and without the, uh, uh, the 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 flying and uh, dedication of uh, Hal Three, uh, Carl Nelson in particular, and uh, and his uh, you know his door gunners, uh, I'm not here to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. So it it's uh, it's interesting to be able to have that conversation. Uh, any uh, any smart-ass remarks that I might uh, make about it, call it seal humor, uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's what it is. Uh, I'm happy to be alive, and I'm glad those guys are alive too. Yeah. Um, and then that ended up being the last mission that you guys did. <laughs> Absolutely. There was nobody left to come anywhere. Uh, we, uh, you know, and uh, unfortunately, uh, there was not much of a debrief. Uh, you know, we were all there in, uh, were we all there in Bintui? I think, except Marcus. Uh, Marcus had, uh, uh, Marcus went, uh, well, I don't know what his uh, his uh, his evac process was, but uh, the rest of us were there in, uh, in, uh, in Bintui Third uh, Field Surgical Hospital, uh, you know, together for a few days. But then, then we went different directions uh, in the uh, in, in the process. Uh, uh, Jim Rowland went one one place. I came back to San Diego. I don't remember where Grant went. Uh, but uh, you know, I basically Jesus, I don't know how many years it was before I I saw Grant again. It was just one of those deals. How bad was your hand messed up? I can't imagine getting shot in the hand. It was- it seems like for you to be totally mobile with your hands, what, just well, get lucky? Uh, yeah, I, I got lucky. And, you know, when, when you tell somebody that you were wounded, people want to, you know, you know, people are almost hesitant to ask about your war wound because they figure you're going to pull down your pants and show where you're shot in the ass, you know. <laughs> uh, but I've, I've, I've got a better one because I was, I was holding, holding on to the pistol grip of a, uh, of a machine gun. The round went through the end of my thumb. Through my finger, you can see how the uh, nail there is uh, somewhat damaged, mm-hmm. and then through the uh, through the hand and just shattered the uh, the bones in the hand. So, I was a radio man at this point in time, and uh, I was fortunate. I was able to use my thumb, my index finger, uh, in order to uh, to operate the the handset because the the end of end of my middle finger was no good, my ring finger was no good, and neither was my uh, my pinky finger. So I had I had two fingers to uh, to work the radio with, and uh, you know I was fortunate to be able to do that. In uh, in Grant Telfer's recounting of how uh, this uh, this went down, he said, uh, you know, he he heard me, you know, Yelp or scream when I uh, first got hit, and uh, then he uh, then he mentions in uh, in the summary that he provided for uh, uh, Captain Slattery, uh, he heard you know Tom uh, yelp a second time. Well, let me tell you about that second time. 
uh, we've all seen uh, people like uh, John Wayne or uh, what's his name, Clint Eastwood, uh, get get wounded and you know go on and do great wonderful things. And I don't remember if it was Two Mules or Sister Sarah, where uh, you know Eastwood takes an arrow in the shoulder and he puts a little gunpowder on the you know hole in the front of his uh, shoulder and the hole in the back of the shoulder and pulls the arrow back out through. So I said, hey, shit, Eastwood could do it. I can do it. So I looked down at my hand after I got hit, uh, and I see what I thought was the bullet sticking out of the back of my hand. So, hey, you know, let's just take a second and take care of this. So I reached down, and I grabbed what I thought was the bullet between my teeth, and I, uh, and I just give it a good yank to, uh, to get that uh, bullet out of there. Well, it was one of my finger bones, <laughs> and that finger bone was still attached. That's as Grant heard me yelp the second time. I mean, I don't know what the pain is like giving birth, but I'm telling you, that was, that was absolutely amazing. I, I swear to God, my toes curled. And, but that's the kind of guy you have in the teams. That's who the fuck we are. You know, okay, I got a hole in my hand. That's a bullet. Let me get rid of the bullet. You know? Yeah. There's an old saying, you fuck with the truck and you get dumped, right? <laughs> That's who the special forces are. If you want somebody to go in there and do the job, you want somebody to ignore pain and do what it is that they're supposed to do, 1-800-SPECIAL-OPERATIONS. Uh, you're coming home now from Vietnam. Did you know the war was gonna, did you know that was probably gonna be your last deployment? No, I didn't, and uh, quite frankly, I uh, I got got that information sort of like as a surprise. Uh, my, uh, you know, when I was first wounded, they told me they were probably going to have to have a second operation on my hand to re- you know, restore, you know, full function. So I, I get to Balboa Hospital, and they you know, they unwrap the, uh, the the cast and so on, and and they say uh, you. you we don't think you're going to be able to uh, to move your ring finger, and so I moved my ring finger, and you know, not a whole lot of strength there, of course. But I said, "Oh, well, you know, if you don't think we need to go in again uh, and and you know straighten out the uh, the bones and so on, if it seems to be functioning, uh, uh, just go through a recovery process and you're good to go." So I uh, I said, "Well, if I don't have to have another operation on my hand, that's good for me." And uh, so I went through the rehab, and I, you know, as soon as, as soon as I was uh, given a, a medical clearance that I was good to go, I went back into the XO's office and said, "XO, sign me up." And he said, uh, "Tom, uh, I'm afraid, afraid I can't do that. Uh, the uh, the war is starting to wind down, as you just said, Jocko, and uh, the uh, leadership, rightly so, wanted to make sure that." Uh, uh, a bunch of guys, uh, a bunch of guys, the rest of the guys who had not had actual combat experience would have that opportunity for that exposure. Uh, let's make sure we understand opportunity, exposure, and the required experience that you want in your military fighting forces. So the uh, the CO and the XO were getting as many new guys the opportunity to deploy and get that exposure to, holy shit, I'm going to die, or maybe I'm going to live. Uh, and live through it, and you're a different person. That's what they were trying to do. XO tells me that, uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to become a member of another platoon. And I said, well, I, I'm out of here. 
uh, I can't I can't stay here and watch these guys go do what I want to do. So at that point in time, uh, I went through a decision process trying to figure out, <clears throat> do I get out of the Navy? Uh, if I do, what do I do? Border Patrol, FBI, uh, you know, what, what's, uh, what, what's it going to be? Uh, do, I, uh, do I stay in the teams? If I do, what do I do? Uh, and so uh, I, uh, I went from SEAL Team 1 to the training center as a diving officer. Uh, and uh, that, was a, uh, that was a great experience, uh, you know, dealing with the, uh, the kids, the new guys. Kids, new guys, they're like four years. The officers are like three or four years younger than me, right? <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I, I had that job. It was, a, uh, it was a great experience. So I said, well, I'll stick around for a little while longer. And you know, ended up being 30 years. But I was, I, was really, I was really disappointed not to get the opportunity to go back. Uh, and uh, as you know, I went to El Salvador when uh, Lieutenant uh, Commander Schaffelberger was killed. Uh, and uh, as soon as I heard about Al's death, I raised my hand. Uh, and uh, I was surprised that there weren't a few more people raising their hand. But uh, I raised my hand to go, go down there. I mean, that's where... That's where my trade and my experience and my skills were going to be needed in some way, shape, or form. I want to do that. That's why I signed up. So before you went down to El Salvador, so you did, you went to Bud's for a little while as as a dive phase officer. I had a a two-year tour at Bud's, and... One of the things that I felt was a uh, was a failure on the on the mission, where we all got uh, got wounded there on the thirtieth of January, was an intelligence failure. So from Buds, I went to Defense Intelligence School. It was a nine month program back at uh, uh, at uh, the Navy Yard in uh, in Washington D.C. Actually, the Anacostia Annex. <clears throat> nine month program, and from there I went to uh, two years as the uh, as the Intel officer at Naval Special Warfare Group Two. Uh, then I got to uh, to team one to team two as the as the ops officer, and uh, uh, that's where I met folks like uh, uh, Bruce Van Hurdem, Dick Marcinko, uh, uh, you name it, uh, all the uh, cast characters. Uh, Bob uh, was it Bob uh, Bob Wagner, the uh, Navy Cross mm-hmm. <clears throat> Navy Cross winner from uh, one of the Navy Cross winners from SEAL Team Two. Was uh, was running the uh, the training program uh, at, uh, at at Team Two, and he was uh, he was a uh, he was just a hard as nails son of a bitch. Uh, you know, you know, great guy. He wanted to make sure that the guys were uh, were trained and ready to go and do what uh, do what they needed to do. What was the at this time in the late seventies? I mean, there'd just be there been no money for the seals. I'm imagining no. Like what was the, as the as the as the Navy drew down, you know, during like the Carter years, what was that like? Seeing as I'm not sure if the Navy can stop my pension, I have a hard time answering that question. <laughs> <clears throat> when when I came back from Vietnam, uh, we had uh, and before I left to go to uh, the be the diving officer. Uh, the Navy was uh, the, the Navy was tearing down uh, its uh, brown water Navy uh, and and they they weren't really thinking about special operations they were just thinking about brown water Navy uh, 
the uh, uh, you you interviewed uh, uh, Carl Nelson from uh, from HAL three. The helicopter attack light squadrons uh, that were set up in, in Vietnam were commissioned in Vietnam mm-hmm. and disestablished in Vietnam, never even came back to the United States. There was not a commitment by the Navy to support special operations aviation assets. Uh, when I came back, uh, SEAL Team 1 had a, uh, had a directive to uh, uh, reduce end strength uh, by it was either thirty or thirty-four. The oh yeah, they sent guys to the fleet, right? They sent them back to the fleet. I the the expression that sticks in my mind was a thirty thirty-four, as we called them. It might have been the dirty thirty, but it was thirty or thirty-four guys. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, Bruce Bruce Van Hurtem and uh, uh, George Worthington. Uh, you know, God rest his soul. George uh, just passed away. But can you imagine? Yeah, so somebody in, in in the Navy, we're reducing end strengths, comes down and they tell uh, Commander Worthington and Lieutenant Commander Van Hurtem, okay, you got a shit can, 34 of your guys who've just been through some of the most difficult training in the world and uh, and, and send them back to the fleet. Uh, uh, they, they came up with the best uh, set of criteria that they could at the time for – People who had only been in the team for a certain period of time, guys with no deployments, uh, guys under the rank of such and such. You know, uh, there were there were there were a number of those things, but they did they did the best that they could. But it sucked, uh, and and a bunch of those guys came back. Uh, probably most of those guys came back. Uh, but what that shows, what I just said about the uh, the HAL situation, uh, the SEAL Team 1, and I'm sure SEAL Team 2 went through the same thing. Uh, I actually have never talked to anybody about that. But uh, you look at the uh, at the Green Berets. They, uh, the Army was, uh, were tossing those guys left and right. Uh, so the military did not understand the Department of Defense State Department did not understand what was going on in the world and the uh, and the type of conflicts that we were going to see coming down the road. To your point, there in the seventies, it was a it was a period of time when not much was going on. But you turn around and you start looking at uh, at El Salvador and other locations. Uh, uh, the uh, the operations we uh, we did down there in Panama, uh, you know things things are starting to look pretty pretty stinky uh, you know, around the around the rest of the world. And you're not going to send an aircraft carrier or a battleship to do that. Mm-hmm. You're going to send somebody like us. And uh, you even fast forward to the uh, to the uh, to the Gulf Wars. You know, multiple. Uh, who was it that was getting uh, you know most of the assignments? Uh, every once in a while, a uh, uh, ship or a submarine would launch a few missiles on a particular strike. Uh, but uh, you know, who was? Uh, who was getting all the uh, Who was getting all the press? Who was doing all the missions? Naval Special Operations, Navy Special Warfare. Uh, we've uh, <clears throat> we've evolved. As you asked me earlier about the, some of the types of missions com- then mm-hmm. then as compared to now, uh, we've evolved incredibly, and that that evolution is is absolutely key. We today are the same people that we were fifty years ago. Jesus. Time flies. We're, we are today the same guys as we were 50 years ago. The guys who figure out how to get it done. 
Uh, you know, people like to use the term out-of-the-box thinking. If you think there is a box, you're already constrained. There is no box. And as we move forward, people, people wonder about what it is about naval special warfare. We are problem solvers. We, need, we figure out how to, how to get it. We are given some of the most difficult missions there are in the inventory of missions and told to, told to figure out how to do them. Sure, we draw in all kinds of other specialties, but that's exactly what we do. We draw in, you know, l- look at that whole business with, uh, you know, bin Laden. Uh, you know, that wasn't all us, but look at what was brought to bear when we went from incredible intelligence assets, incredible aviation assets, incredible planning assets. Our guys figured out how to fly behind mountains and out of, uh, out of radar signatures so, uh, uh, so the uh, host nation wouldn't even know we were there. That takes a lot of innovation, problem solving. When I talk to people about who the military is, what we do, people think of us as uh, you know, you know, bullet launchers, tank drivers, airplane drivers, uh, you know, submarine skippers. They don't understand all the planning and thought and problem solving, personal management, you name it, that goes into having a successful, uh, successful unit. It's not, it's not just pushing a button and launching a missile that uh, General Dynamics might have built. It's all the other planning that goes on before and after that is so important. It's what sets, that sets, sets the military aside. Mm-hmm. So when you let's talk about El Salvador, and this is one of the small conflicts that was going on. Um, how how did you end up getting down there? Well, uh, unfortunately, I was at a uh, at a team party uh, back in uh, May of 1983, and uh, people were shooting the breeze. And it turned out that uh, Lieutenant Commander Al Schafferberger, who was uh, you know serving a tour down there as a uh, uh, SEAL member of the uh, military advisory group, had been assassinated. Uh, boy, there's there's so much that I can uh, I can say about that. Uh, I learned you know, I've had the, I've had the opportunity to have some great jobs in the Navy. Uh, each one of them I've learned so many things, and you you don't have enough time to listen. Uh, but uh, uh, look look at El Salvador. Uh, so I uh, Al gets killed. I volunteer to replace him, and I was a commanding officer of uh, Special Boat Unit 13 at the time. Uh, great opportunity. So the requirement for the guy for uh, you know replacing Al Salferberger was they wanted SEAL experience, they wanted boat experience, and they wanted the guy to be able to speak Spanish. They also wanted the guy to be a volunteer. Well, when the uh, when my name was forwarded to the uh, 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 to the commander of the military advisory group, he said, "Well, three out of four ain't bad because I didn't <laughs> I didn't speak Spanish, <laughs> but uh, I I had the, had the other stuff down. But that's exactly what I did, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. That's that's why I went to naval special warfare. That's what I wanted to do. You know the uh, you know uh, one of the uh, one of the guys at uh, uh, SEAL Team One had his uh, when I was a skipper had uh, had his brother come out and they were running around and. Uh, 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 did PT with us and so on and so forth. And uh, this guy says to his brother, the SEAL, uh, says, who is that guy? It looks like uh, there ought to be a sign there. It says, in case of war, break glass. And uh, he, 
he told me about that, and uh, and I had to laugh. But that's what I want to say about each and every guy in the teams. In case of war, break glass. So that's why I went down to uh, went down to Salvador. Uh, I wanted to see what was going on. Uh, I had two or three weeks of uh, uh, personalized uh, Spanish training, uh, and uh, but I was the outgoing commanding officer of a unit. I had, because it was active and, re, and, and reserve, I had X number of active and I had three times that many reserve officer fitness reports, you know, chief evaluations to get, to get out. Uh, and the other thing is, a lot of those guys did things that deserved recognition during the period of time that I was commanding officer. So I had awards to, uh, to get written up. And uh, so it was, uh, it was a hard period of time. I didn't get a whole hell of a lot of Spanish. Uh, but by the time I left El Salvador, I was dreaming in Spanish. How long were you down there for? I was, I was down there for a full year. Uh, but uh, it was, uh, uh, I, I first got down there and I, working in the embassy, uh, whether they were Americans or uh, you know Salvadorans, they all had to speak fluent English. So we could get business done because numbnuts here couldn't speak Spanish. Uh, we could get business done speaking English, and uh, I tried uh, try, tried doing it all in uh, in Spanish when I first got there, and uh, it was enough of a uh, of a delay. I said, "Okay, we'll we'll work on this gradually." You know, habla yeah, inglés. So <laughs> we uh, we we went and uh, we we spoke uh, English, but that was one of the most exciting times that I've uh, that I've ever had in the military. Uh, I got down there, and you know, there was a there was a civil war going on. the uh, The mill group commander, a guy named Joe Stringham, Colonel Joe Stringham, smoking Joe Stringham. Uh, the uh, uh, I don't want to say the guy was on speed, but I I don't know what made this man tick. That man never slowed down. That smoking Joe. I mean, he, you know, peripatetic, hyperkinetic. You pick your term. That was uh, that was Joe. I couldn't keep up with the man, and I thought I was pretty good. So I get down there. I'm there for about ten days or two weeks, and I have I'm, I've you know uh, taken over the job that. Uh, uh, Al was doing part time, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm the XO at the uh, at the office as well as the Navy rep. And uh, there's a there's a a retired or I don't know, Hilda Hilda wasn't in the Air Force long enough. Uh, Hilda, the secretary, uh, was uh, 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 Hispanic American, and uh, she was uh, uh, piece of work. She brought out this piece of paper that uh, Colonel Stringham had written. You know, this is the Colonel wants me to type this up. I can't, I can't read this, and, and so uh, Hilda and I were going over this particular piece of paper. And it's the only reason I could make sense of it, and figure out what it was, was because I had been part of the conversation. <laughs> I knew what he's trying to do, but that's. I mean, he didn't. He didn't have. He didn't have time to to, to write uh, write clearly. So ten days after I, I'm down there, I finally. You know, he's. I, I, my position is I could I could see uh, see the door to his office and maybe even see see partly into his office. And Colonel Stringham's getting ready to uh, to go off back over to the Estado Mayor. The Estado Mayor is is their uh, equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he worked with the, uh, the all the, uh, the the leadership of the uh, Salvadoran military. He's getting ready to blast off and go over to the Estado Mayor. And uh, I was. 
not at my lifting peak, but I was, uh, I was, you know, pretty big, but almost Jocko's size. And uh, uh, Colonel Stringham was a few inches shorter, and uh, you know, you know, a good fifty pounds, you know, maybe sixty pounds lighter. So I just stood in the door, <laughs> and I said, "Colonel, we got to talk. I, I got to have some left and right margins." <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, okay, come on over to the house tonight. All right, so. Uh, but uh, that was a fantastic year. Colonel Stringham spent his time working very closely with the Estado Mayor because, as you remember, there were things like death squads going on uh, before, uh, before I got down there and before the colonel got down there. Uh, I think there had been a, uh, a number of uh, nuns who had been kidnapped, raped, killed, and all that other stuff, and it was being blamed on some of the Salvadoran Armed forces, not the bad guys, mm-hmm. but the Salvador. So, <clears throat> Colonel Stringham was doing everything that he could to provide that uh, U.S. influence mm-hmm. on 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 how to conduct warfare. Uh, and so, in order to do that, he needed to spend a lot of his time over there. So, I ended up being the stucky in the embassy. Uh, and when I say <laughs> when I say stucky, you know that meant uh, this uh, uh, this meeting that came up, or that meeting that came up, or this delegation coming down to Salvador, and uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> so, it was a wonderful opportunity. Let me drift right back to Ray Smith for a second. Uh, Secretary Armitage, uh, name was Rachel Armitage, was a Naval Academy graduate, uh, and uh, you know. Uh, Secretary Armitage at the time was the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, I think it was. He had a couple of active duty military assistants, Ray Smith, his classmate from uh, from the Naval Academy, and, and another guy. So uh, international security affairs is what paid for uh, what goes on, uh, you know, what money comes to, uh, to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And they, they monitor it and review it and so on. And it was a lot of money at this time. Uh, it, it was, was like it, it was a lot billion, of money. billions of dollars are going down there. I, I, I don't remember mm-hmm. the uh, the numbers but uh, uh, and I should because I can't tell you how many how many hours or weeks I spent going over the numbers this that and the other thing so about uh, after we had that conversation uh, you know colonel and I uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm in country you know no more than three weeks no more than four weeks and uh, Secretary of Defense comes down to visit Casper Weinberger mm-hmm. Secretary Weinberger comes down, and Assistant Secretary uh, uh, Armitage is with him. And in my uh, accelerated preparation to go down to uh, uh, Salvador, I went to uh, a couple of courses, and there was this Air Force, uh, was he a major at the time? Uh, Anyway, he and I became friends in this three-week course at Air Force Base, and uh, he ends up uh, being an assistant to... uh, uh, to, to, to Weinberger, <clears throat> so Weinberger comes down for the uh, for the uh, for the full full treatment, and and I'm I'm handling the backside operations, making sure that yeah you know, everybody's where they're supposed to be, yada yada, and uh, so I didn't have any contact with uh, with uh, Armitage, you know, uh, you know Weinberger, this you know, Air Force major uh, that I had met. Colonel uh, Colonel Stringham comes back. We're having a debrief of the day, and first thing out of his mouth, he just says. Who are you? What do you mean? Who are you? He said, three or four people on the Secretary of Defense staff today asked me, how's Tom Richards doing? Who are you? <laughs> so, so I said to him, I said, well, 
one of my uh, one of my buds classmates is a special assistant to uh, you know uh, you know Secretary Armitage and uh, you know uh, if uh, we ever needed to play an ace in the hole and things weren't quite going right you know, I, I could always call Ray and uh, you know he'd, uh, he'd be more than happy to help figure out mm-hmm. how to unscrew something <laughs> and Stringham just shook his head but one of the uh, there are any number of stories. Uh, you, you may recall that we had a limitation on the number of advisors we could have in country at a, at a given point in time, and that number happened to be 55. And as I say, there's a number of stories about how that uh, number came up. Be that as it may, that was a number that we had to live with. I can count to 55 in my sleep, uh, starting with my left hand, my right hand, my left foot, my right foot. If we had 56... American military individuals in country, the press was all over us like a hangover on Saturday morning. Oh, you're not living up to your obligation. You're trying to get too many trainers in country. You're doing this. Bottom line is, my job, my ass was gonna lose a chunk if number 56 was Mm -hmm. in, in country. We were at some points in time. We had guys getting off the airplane in uh, at the uh, at the Salvadoran Air Force, uh, you know, base, and other guys getting on at the same time just to make sure we stayed at fifty five. And uh, at one point in time, we had a series of challenges, security challenges in country. Uh, I had my go bag packed. I always had my go bag packed. Did that fifty five include like the embassy security, Marines, and all that? No, that's where okay. I was going to go. the uh, The Marines had a uh, security detachment, and it was uh, one of the largest. It was oh twenty five, twenty eight guys. It was it was a large uh, you know Marine security detachment. And uh, so you had the Marine security detachment. You had the military advisory group staff. Uh, so that was me, the colonel. Uh, Ms. Martinez, uh, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, you know, three, four uh, Army officers and Air Force officers who were uh, five, six uh, Air Force officers who were uh, Army and Air Force officers who were doing uh, uh, various things as part of the Mill Group staff. Then you also had the Defense Attaché's office, Defense Attaché's office. Uh, there were only a handful of guys over there, half a, no more than half a dozen. So, uh, we had a meeting at the uh, at the embassy. We called everybody in to get everybody in uniform on the same page. Uh, it was about you know security kinds of things, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, there's a half a dozen uh, uh, media personnel always keeping an eyeball on. They counted. And, and there was no way we had 55 of our advisors there, but we had a bunch of our advisors there. We had a bunch of the Marines there. We had our uh, mill group staff. We had our uh, you know, attache staff. So they counted well over 55, uh, you know, you know, military guys. <coughs> and uh, so I spent part of a press conference explaining to them, you know, who these people are and how they count and how close attention we do pay to that uh, pay to that number uh, but that was a real you know, a real pain in the uh, in the butt so I so as I mentioned I'm talking to the uh, to the press about that mrs. Richards little boy Tommy did not go to Salvador prepared to be you know fielding questions from the Washington Post the New York Times the San Diego Union uh, I mean give me a break uh, 
I was a fast learner though, uh, but it was uh, it was uh, it was difficult. You know, they had a, they had they had a uh, they had an agenda, and uh, I had a uh, I had a mission. And so uh, I won't say never the twain shall meet, uh, but uh, I had to I had to be very careful with uh, with my answers, and I had to uh, uh, debunk a number of their of their concerns. While I was there, and I apologize for not being able to recall the man's name, there was actually a reporter from San Diego who was killed uh, on a on in, in a battle zone, and. <clears throat> Of course, the colonel was over at the Estado Mayor, so I was taking that next press conference. And <clears throat> I'm saying that they, you know, one of the things that the uh, press compl- uh, complained about was the, you know, the number of uh, uh, what they were calling non-combatant injuries that were occurring. And of course, this reporters in your ear, death is, uh, is, 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 is non-combatant as you can get. But I try to explain to them, there's a firefight going on there. There's a gunfight going out there. These, these bullets, when they come out of the end of the gun that are aimed by people are not necessarily the best marksmen that they are, that there could be. These bullets don't have name tags on them. And, uh, you know, it's hard to tell where they're going to go and who's going to get hit. One of the things that the uh, that the guerrillas did, because they were you know guerrillas and they didn't have the uh, the kind of funding that you might have wanted to have, was uh, when the shooters, the guys, are out there. One of the guys gets hit, fall down. One of the women or one of the kids go right out onto the battle zone to collect the gun mm-hmm. and the bullets for the other guys, so they still have weapons and ammunition to carry out the fight. They're right there in the middle of the uh, of the firefight. Of course, they're going to get hit. It isn't our decision that they choose to make them combatants, but that's what they have done. They're no longer women and children. They are they are combatants. They are right there on the on the in the combat zone. That's the kind of thing that these different countries with these different senses of values mm-hmm. do to the Americans, and they and they do it. Uh, uh, you know, throughout the uh, throughout the Middle East, they were doing it in uh, in Salvador, and that's the type of battles that our young servicemen are forced into. You take an American kid, whether he's come out out of high school or college. What do we talk about today? We've got uh, we've got. Uh, uh, you know, women's rights. We've got gays' rights. We have uh, you know, equal opportunity. Uh, you know, you know, LGBTQ, whatever the uh, whatever the uh, variety of things are that our youth of today is drilled to be so aware of and so conscious of. Uh, we treat women in the United States. Uh, my wife weighs about a buck eighteen or a buck twenty. If I was to raise my hand to that lady, I'd break her in half. I've never even thought about it. In foreign countries, they use women as flak jackets to protect themselves from, uh, from bullets coming in. Those kinds of things are so antithetical to what we think and we believe as Americans. And yet we take this kid out of, uh, you know, uh, Peoria or, uh, yeah, you know, pick your, uh, you know, uh, Central United States or Central American values. We take this person and we put them in the middle of this shitstorm, this this soup of uh, total disregard for human rights and human life, human values, and uh, you know we we do this to people on a uh, on a daily basis. Uh, that's uh, 
That's the kind of thing that I really first encountered in Vietnam, saw it brought home again in El Salvador, uh, you know, being on the, uh, being on the ground uh, as, as I was. So we, we do some pretty interesting things to our, uh, to our youth of America by throwing them into this cauldron of, uh, of discontent that we do. I could I could go on uh, go on for that one uh, yeah, a, a little bit more, but uh, that's uh, that's a uh, that's, that's an incredible thing. So I will go on with that for just a little bit more. Let me talk about something people call PTSD, and I won't use some of my you know, you know, terminology uh, on your on your podcast, but we need to lose the D. Let's just go back to my day in the rice paddy in uh, January of, uh, of 71. I got Don Futrell with a bullet hole in his chest. I got Grant Telfer shot in both legs. I got Jim Rowland with a bullet hole in his chest and his groin. My hand is, you know, looks like a, uh, looks like kind of, you know, you know, raw hamburger, you know, left in, uh, left in a pile of juice. I'm not ever going to unsee that. I'll say that I don't mind, and I really don't because we had signed up to do that. That's what we're there for. But people today are coming back from uh, from wars, and they're seeing far worse. They're seeing roadside uh, you know, uh, you know, IEDs, you know, uh, supposedly uh, in- impenetrable, uh, you know, armored vehicles, you know, you know, ripped apart like a uh, like like a beer can, and 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 the parts of the people inside of that that they try to drag to safety if they happen to be a survivor, and they just watch bleed out, or the uh, or the corpsmen that have to deal with that on a daily basis. You cannot unsee any of that. It's not going to go away. You look at our first responders of today. You've got a you got a knife fight. You got a gunfight. You've got a fire at a, at a house. You've got a gas explosion. What do those people see? They see fellow members of their township or whatever their association is in parts, blood everywhere. You know, sometimes human forms ir- irrecognizable if there is such a term. You're never going to unsee those things. So let's not talk about post-traumatic stress as a disorder, if you don't have some thoughts, some concerns, if you didn't wish your fellow American wasn't such a jackass at times to cause this kind of hate, discontent, pain, and misery on other people, if you didn't have some form of thought process of, uh, again, regret that, uh, that, that these things happened, wish they didn't happen, wish that you didn't happen to see it, if you didn't have those kinds of thoughts, that's the disorder. You know, I tell my wife that I don't have any post-traumatic stress. I don't have any flashbacks. You can call me a lion mother, but uh, uh, you know, I, there are things. <laughs> we were standing outside a, uh, a, a dinner theater shortly after I came back from Vietnam. Car backfired. Jackie looked. Where am I? I'm on the ground. I'm looking for what the problem is, where it came from, what do I need to do about it. I wouldn't call that post-traumatic stress. I'd say that's good training. (laughs) 
But as we as as we look at all these uh, all these individuals who come back from these situations, and I want to I want to include the first responders who face these things every day. As as we look at these people, we need to understand. We will never understand some of the things that they cannot unsee, but we need to understand that they have been in those situations, and we have put them there. We, the American people, sent Chaco and myself, the rest of us, to various places around the world we never could find on the map before we went there to do things, to try to support people in democratic pursuits, and shit happens. And it's not, it's not pretty, but yet we do that to the youth of America time and time again. So we need to understand that this post-traumatic stress ex- exists. It's not a disorder, and we need to make sure that we address it. Where did you when you when you came home from Vietnam and like you know you just talked that story about the the uh, gunfire or the backfire in the car? Uh, what about the rest of your platoon? It sounds like you guys kind of went to the four winds and all in different directions. We sure did. I think I mentioned earlier in the uh, in the podcast that uh, I hadn't seen Grant Telfer for you know f- you know fifteen twenty years maybe even more after that. And he he later became a, a commanding officer of uh, of SEAL Team One. While he was in that position, I was on the uh, on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, years later, I I bumped into uh, into Jim Rowland. Uh, and uh, Don Futrell went to uh, went into EOD, uh, <laughs> another one of those easy uh, <laughs> easy warfare specialties. Uh, he went into EOD, and uh, Don retired as a as a W four. But uh, shortly after after he went uh, left the platoon, uh, I, I lost track of Don. I knew he went into EOD, but uh, we reconnected, and I uh, I spoke at his retirement. Uh, but you know, crap, uh, that was. Not much to say for uh, for uh, you know keeping tabs mm-hmm. on your platoon members. Uh, other guys got out. Uh, Marcus Arroyo was a uh, was a highly successful uh, you know uh, um, uh, executive in the uh, uh, I believe it was the F uh, FAA or was it TF- FAA I believe uh, and uh, you know so uh, but I, but we lost track of each other and so we're really. Uh, uh, I know I am really looking forward to seeing some of those guys again here uh, this weekend. But those guys, you know, they, they carried on, right? So whatever PTS they had, they were able to say, okay, this is my, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to go to the FAA or I'm going to get out and go to EOD. And, and we're able to kind of push through those, whatever, whatever was going on in their heads. That appears to be the, that appears to be the case, and of course, not of course. Uh, uh, Jim Rowland uh, got out of the Navy for a little bit after uh, uh, after Vietnam, but he came back uh, and uh, retired as a senior chief. Mm-hmm. So let's go back. You get you get home from El Salvador. What's next on on the agenda? Uh, let's see. Where did I go from El Salvador? I came. Uh, I came back here to beautiful, sunny Southern California, uh, and I. Uh, I was. Uh, I was on the uh, staff of uh, Special Warfare Group One, and uh, I, I worked for a couple of folks uh, who uh, who end up being uh, flag officers, uh, uh, Chuck Lemoyne and uh, uh, George Worthington. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple. A couple of good guys, and 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 of course met a met a whole lot of other good good guys. And 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 what I'll say, uh, what I need to say here is, when I retired, that's what I missed most. The guys. I missed the guys, and of course, knowing what was going on in the world. But you missed the guys. You missed missed the organization, the associations. Uh, so I went to uh, I went to uh, to Group One, 
Uh, and from Group 1, I went over to uh, the BCO SEAL Team 1. Now, that's almost like cheating because I was the operations officer at, uh, at Group 1. So I knew, I knew how the group staff worked. Right. Uh, I knew how the group commander worked. Uh, and and uh, when I say the staff, just, just how it functions, who did what to whom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, who, so, who you could call to build who, those little relationships. Right. And uh, 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 Admiral Worthington and, and Admiral Lemoyne uh, had a, uh, and several other guys who were the commander there, had a uh, secretary by the name of Lena. And I, mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed I can remember Lena's last name. But Lena was, was a piece of work. Uh, Lena knew everything. And if you were good in Alina, you learned a lot. Uh, but I remember uh, I, uh, you know, one day, uh, uh, you know, I think it was uh, it was Lemoyne. Uh, Lemoyne comes out to Lena and you know, all right, I want this, 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 and this. Lena knows that sounds kind of familiar. She comes trotting into my office, and we uh, you know, you know, we try to piece it together and figure out. You know, she had some of the files for that, and I had some of the files. But uh, you know, she was uh, she was uh, you know quite a uh, quite a young lady, and young lady, older lady. Uh, but uh, there were some great folks on that staff, and like I said, it's kind of like cheating uh, to to have that chance before I went to SEAL Team One. And then your CEO of SEAL Team One for a couple years, and this is. What what years are you the CEO of SEAL Team One? Eighty six to eighty eight. Okay, and uh, during that period of time, I had the chance to deploy to the Persian Gulf as I was a commander. The uh, <coughs> the oil rigs and the counter Iranian right stuff. Right. So we had uh, uh, we had two uh, 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 two barges uh, that were really oil rig support barges. Uh, and we used those as uh, floating, uh, uh, floating operations bases for uh, uh, a couple of elements of, uh, you know, a couple of aviation uh, elements. I think their participation was later declassified, but we'll just leave it at that. Uh, a couple of, uh, you know, aviation elements. And, of course, we had our, our patrol boats. And our patrol boats were, you know, doing escorts uh, of uh, of. Uh, U.S. Navy big hulls. They were also doing escorts of uh, tankers. You know, uh, as you may uh, recall, a number of those foreign flag ships were reflagged to U.S. ships, so we could actually, excuse me, we could actually escort them mm-hmm. up and down the uh, up and down the Gulf. What was was there any highlights to those deployments? <laughs> there, there, there were a number of them. Uh, we had uh, you may there's a uh, uh, Paul Evanco led an op on uh, uh, something on a, on a boat called the Iran Ajar, and the Iran Ajar was caught uh, trying to see uh, a few more mines mm-hmm. after you know Iran had been uh, been told stop what you're doing. Anyway, they. They conducted the op, uh, you know, seized the seized the boat, a bunch of mines, and so on. Well, fast forward, you know, several months later, I'm out there as the uh, the task unit uh, yeah, commander, and uh, we get a report of a uh, of a craft in restricted waters, and it looks like there might be mine-like objects on the back end of this boat, and that this is another group going to be laying mines in the sea lanes. So we go to uh, GQ. We uh, we launch some of these aviation assets to try to get some uh, night shots of the uh, uh, of the uh, of the boat in uh, in question. And uh, 
it was uh, it was coming up, you know, coming up towards dawn, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, those early hours uh, are the, the good time to uh, to hit folks. Some folks are getting up, some folks are going off a watch, some folks are eating. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, good time to uh, to make a hit if you're going to do that. So they came back, and they had some. Uh, they had some uh, some pictures, uh, and uh, sure looked like mine-like objects. But y- you know, you got that little we call it spidey sense. Something's not quite right with this picture. And one of the things that I always say to the guys: if you think that there's something wrong with this picture, you stop what you're doing and to figure until you figure out what is wrong with this picture. So. We got guys locked and loaded. We got the uh, we got the slicks. We got the gunships. These guys are ready to go take down these boats, this boat. And I said, "Hold fast. We're not going anywhere. Give me one more shot at the uh, at the uh, early twilight." It turned out to be another oil rig supply boat that had a bunch of 55-gallon drums, not mines, on the after deck. Mm -hmm. I won't say what country it was from. They were in waters where they shouldn't have been. They have no idea how close to death they came. So I'm sitting out there. I'm I'm in the talk. I'm 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 monitoring all the uh, the communications, and and I'm the I'm the one that yeah we had these guys in the air said yeah no, and. the uh, the three star navy type uh, who was in charge of uh, of, uh, of uh, you know mid east four you know navy mid east four uh, he uh, I didn't realize it but he was in the talk the whole time uh, you know listening uh, you know I'm sure the the LaSalle uh, was uh, uh, was based in Bahrain we're out there in the middle of the Persian Gulf and uh, the uh, uh, the admiral was there, and you're just listening, you're listening, and uh, you know uh, when I when I called it off, when I saw what it was, he just he went, you know, and uh, went in, and so I I came <clears throat> I came ashore, uh, you know, a week ten days later, and uh, the O six, uh, you know, Opso calls me over and he says, "Good job," <laughs> but uh, you know we had uh, we had American lives on the line, mm-hmm. we had uh, international lives on the line. Uh, could have been a mining operation. I just did not know, uh, and uh, I was not sure that this was a miner, uh, a mine-laying v- uh, vessel. So I said, nope, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. What were your major lessons learned, or what was like a good takeaway from being the commanding officer at SEAL Team 1? Uh, trying to train the guys who are going to follow me, prepare them uh, for their jobs, Uh there was a, uh, a platoon uh, with uh, uh, Dave Pittlecow was the commanding uh, commander of the platoon, and uh, Gardner Howe was his assistant. Uh, <clears throat> that would be Vice Admiral mm-hmm. Howe was his assistant, and they were going over to the Gulf. Uh, and uh, as they're in my uh, in my uh, in my office getting ready to go, uh, one of the things I explained to him is that I feel that you guys are as prepared as you can possibly be to go over there and to conduct the litany of uh, operations that you would be called upon to do. But I said to him, I said, 
my fervent hope is that that doesn't happen. And I got these two confused looks or uh, inquisitive looks uh, from these two, you know, gung-ho SEAL officers who were, you know, getting ready to go to war because it wasn't a shooting war at that point in time. <clears throat> and what I explained to them was, if you guys have got to do the things that we've trained you and prepared you to do, that means that somebody has failed big time. Uh, and so uh, that was a learning experience for uh, for Dave and Gardner, uh, but it was one of the things that I tried to uh, tried to impart to those guys. You know, there's there's while in case of in case of glass, excuse me, glass in case of war, break glass. That's us, absolutely. But if it devolves to that point, that means that White House policy has failed, uh, you know, State Department policy has failed, uh, any number of things uh, you know, across the spectrum of the leadership of our country has failed. So it is truly, in case of war, break glass. One of the, uh, that same platoon, as it turned out, as they're preparing to, uh, uh, preparing to get ready to, uh, to, to go overseas, uh, you have any number of uh, you know, training operations, and uh, you know we're, we, those of us in the teams, are familiar with something we call a rubber duck. Uh, a rubber duck is a uh, is a airdrop of a uh, of a small rubber boat uh, on a uh, on a on a platform, as as it were, drops out in the ocean, and you uh, you sink the platform, and you, from that point in the ocean, you uh, go ashore and you uh, do your job. And if everything worked all right, everybody does, everybody else in the world doesn't know that the C one thirty or one forty one might have dropped this uh, you know boat and seals off the uh, off the coast. Well, they uh, <clears throat> they had a uh, a rubber duck drop uh, you know practice event, and uh, there was a uh, parachute rigging malfunction and instead of the parachute deploying the uh the rubber duck creamed into the ocean you know the uh the uh the platform breaks into uh a thousand pieces the uh the boat is shredded the outboard motor is lost etc etc so uh i had not stayed up uh for stayed at the commander uh for the uh for the event but <clears throat> i get to the uh, to the command about seven o'clock in the morning and uh, I get a uh, I get a, a high speed uh, you know five minute uh, brief that the uh, the rubber duck died and uh, it was a uh, it was a rigging malfunction. So uh, <clears throat> before seven o'clock is before quarters our our day at uh, Team One started with quarters at seven thirty. So uh, it's it's about seven fifteen. Before I could even get to uh, Lieutenant Piddlecow or Lieutenant Howe, uh, the parachute rigger from the squad comes in, bangs on my door, Petty Officer Second Class Bacchus. Bacchus apologizes to the commanding officer of the team for letting his platoon down letting my platoon down for not meeting the expectations of uh, of uh, of everybody that they had for Bacchus and the uh, uh, the troops to do that job. When Bacchus came into the team into my office to do that, that told me that I clearly had some level of communication with the guys, some level of respect from the guys. 
that before I could go out and try to rip him a new one, he shows up at my office and apologizes. You know, that told me that I must have done something right at SEAL Team One. That was that was probably one of the greatest experiences in Team One. Yeah, people taking ownership, and that that's a, a, an attitude that yep. starts at the top. Yep. So you wrap up at SEAL Team One, um, and then you your your next big command is taking over Buds. That was uh, that was my uh, my next. Uh, uh, my next opportunity. I spent uh, I spent three years at uh, Naval Sea Systems Command, uh, learning a lot about money, purchasing, and all that other kind of stuff. And uh, uh, I followed a guy by the name of Tommy Hawkins, uh, uh, who was a legend in the world of our research, development, and acquisition. And even though I left that job as a quote certified Navy acquisition professional, I, I was I was offered jobs in the acquisition side of the house. I was offered the opportunity to take jobs in acquisition as opposed to uh, continuing uh, in, uh, in Naval Special Warfare. So yeah, in, I could have been a program manager at NAVC or as I went to uh, you know, the, the job at the, uh, at the center. But uh, I, ne- I probably never learned as much as Tommy Hawkins uh, knew, about, uh, knew about acquisition. Uh, quite a uh, quite a guy <clears throat> so yes my uh, my next uh, my next uh, my next command was uh, was at uh, at the center and there are a couple of things that were really really fun about the center you watch young men come in there and they're not entirely sure what they're getting into and they're also not entirely sure whether they can do this or not they're pretty sure they can. That's why they're there in the first place. They really want to, which is why they're there. But a lot of folks have a uh, have a little bit of a uh, a, a nagging doubt. And uh, a lot of those guys' success uh, is uh, at times a uh, uh, somewhat of a surprise, perhaps to their parents. Uh, but a uh, in in many cases uh, a uh, an achievement of uh, of great uh, great pride on the, uh, the on the parents' part, and as a uh, as a commanding officer of the uh, the center, one of the things that I did was <clears throat> I attended every Bud's graduation. Now again, this was uh, this was when Bud's was the uh, was the six months before we went on to the uh, the follow on uh, SQT, I believe it's still called these days. Uh, so they would com- they would complete the. Uh, uh, the six months, and then they would go to the various teams for that follow-on training before they received uh, their special warfare designator. Anyway, I cannot tell you how many parents would come up to me at these graduation events, and uh, they would say, uh, uh, you know, Captain Richards, uh, you know, we really want to thank you and your staff for uh, what you have done for, uh, you know, for Frank or uh, or Echo or Gary and uh, and their uh, and their development and their maturation process. Uh, you know, the, the, he's a uh, he's a changed man after these uh, you know, six uh, six eight months. I said, well, no, Mrs. Smith, you really have to understand. We took what you gave us, an individual who had some pretty high aspirations, and you taught him to have those high aspirations. 
We taught an individual who thought he had the qualifications, and you helped him develop these qualifications. You might have thought he was a little bit of a misfit here and there. I'm probably speaking from personal experience. <laughs> but you prepared this, this young man to, uh, to get there. We wouldn't have this young petty officer or this young ensign graduating from SEAL training if it hadn't been for you. And, you know, these parents would just kind of look at me <laughs> and look at each other. Hmm, yeah, you know, maybe there's, uh, maybe there's something to that. But that's a, that, that's a point that I would really like to make, that the individual who, is, who graduates after now it's a year, uh, but that individual came to BUDS with a certain amount of preparation, a significant amount of preparation. And it's preparation that reflects family values, family, uh, you know, family motivation, uh, family support for, a, uh, for an individual. And I can remember some, we never thought he was going to be any good. You know, we kept trying and trying. You know, he always kept getting in trouble and whatever it might have been. And that's my point. You kept trying and trying and trying. And look where he is now. He said, that's your fault. And, uh, you know, they, they'd stop and they think. But it's that, it's that, that preparation, that, uh, that growth, that goal setting that these, uh, these young men have as they, uh, as they start uh, looking around and figuring out what they wanted to do. As, <clears throat> as we talked earlier in the, uh, uh, in the podcast, I really had, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do when I got out of college, if I was going to be fortunate enough to get to college. And uh, in today's environment, it's significantly different. Uh, our youngsters grow up, uh, seem to grow up a lot faster. But that said, they're not going to make it through buds without that, uh, without that background, without that preparation, without those family values. That's, uh, that's so important. They have, to have, they have to have that base. Whether they realize it or not, they have, that, have to have that base to succeed. Yeah, and it's so strange to, to look at buds. It's seems impossible to predict who's going to make it and who's not uh the 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 amount of incredible athletes that show up there and quit the you know i I know i had a guy that was in my class that was a you know ncaa water polo player had another guy that was a gymnastics alternate on the olympic gymnastics team and both those guys quit and you know i was like an average maybe even a little below average athlete in high school and you know, like I just was ready to stick it out. I, and what I was wanting to ask you, and I don't know how close you were to it to see this, but, you know, in talking, I remember talking to some of my friends that worked as uh, the physical therapist, right, at Bud's. And I had a couple of them that had come from uh, professional sports. And so in professional sports, he, he was telling me, you know, he worked with a baseball team or a football team, pro pro-level teams, and he'd say, you know, I might see one or two cases of patellofemoral syndrome or uh, what is it, ITB swelling or this type of back thing. He goes, I might see one or two of those in a season. He goes, I literally saw 48 cases of patellofemoral syndrome in the last three days. It's like this highly, you just get this so much repetitive uh, you know, injuries that happen to all these guys coming in. But then also, what the thing I was going to ask you about is the 
did you start to see any commonalities? I mean, you kind of just mentioned, but in the like the psychological makeup of the people, because you got kids that come from rich families that show up there that were you know two parents that went to church on Sundays and the kids do great. You also see those same kids quit. You see some kid from the hood that grew up without parents or you know a single mom or a single dad and didn't have any money, didn't have anything, and they make it. And you also see kids like that that quit. What did what, what it look like to you? I, I agree with you 110. Uh, percent You mentioned the uh, the gymnast. Uh, we had a uh, we had an Olympic swimmer in our in our class. Uh, Fred was a butterfly guy. Fred made it. There was another NCAA swimmer in the class. I believe his name. Well, his name is not important. There was an NCAA uh, swimmer in the class. That. Uh, that means you're like what the top six or top eight in your uh, in your in your event in the country. One of those. In any event, uh, uh, this guy busted his ass, and one day in one of the you know, series of nuisance races in the pool, this kid beat Fred in, in in one of the races. Two days later, kid's gone. His goal was to be able to say that he beat this Olympic swimmer. He was in there for the wrong reasons. <clears throat> I have never really been able to tell you who was going to make it and who was not. Uh, but as I've as I've looked at it, you know, for years and years, and I've uh, worked with a guy by the name of Captain Bissett up in uh, in New England as he uh, tries to prepare guys for training. Uh, <clears throat> he has he has somewhere around a seventy better than a seventy percent success rate for his candidates. Uh, the average success rate of any class, as you know, is somewhere around 25 or 30% graduate. In, uh, in Drew's case, 75% graduate. So as I've, as I've looked at things over the years, there was another group when I was a CEO of the center who had a 75% graduation rate. Mm. That group was the Naval Academy candidates. Let's stop and think about Wait, like how many, like how many of them were Naval Academy? Seventy of the of the Naval Academy people who came in. Oh, I see. So seventy five percent of Naval Academy guys make it. Right. Yep. Let's stop and think about it. In order to get into the Naval Academy, that is one hell of a competitive process. I don't think the American public realizes how competitive it is to get into a uh, a military service academy. It you you. Know, it's either political appointment or combination of political appointments and uh, exceptional uh, academic capability and uh, and physical ability. Uh, for years, those academies only gave engineering degrees. Uh, I don't. I might be uh, somewhere back in the uh, in the seventies where they started uh, with some other degrees, but it's very difficult to get into the academies. So if you get into the academy. You have set a goal, you have worked hard to achieve that goal, and you've attained that goal. Now, in the case of the Naval Academy and the, uh, and the individuals who end up with a quota to buds, uh, I'm not an academy graduate. I'm fairly sure of how it works, but if there's a guy out there who wants to correct it, please do so. They have a, uh, a warfare specialty selection process. And the number one guy in the class at the Naval Academy can pick what warfare specialty he wants to go to. Uh, the, uh, the way it works, and that's the way it works, whether he decides he wants to be an aviator, 
Uh, of course, if he wants to be a SEAL, he's got to pass the uh, uh, the PFT. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if he's got the uh, the PFT, and today he's got to go to uh, SOAS, the Special Ops uh, uh, Acquisition and Selection. But uh, you've got to be at the top of your class. So you've you've not only fought to get into the Naval Academy, you have fought to keep your uh, your grades up. You have fought to keep your uh, your physical conditioning up because out of the top hundred guys in the Naval Academy, they're probably going to eat up those quotas to go to buds. Uh, and so now there's 1,100 guys in the Naval Academy. Every one of those 1,100 individuals was pretty outstanding to get there in the first place. Now you've got to work to be in the top 100, 100-plus in, in that group to get selected to BUDS. So those guys, this is my reasoning, those guys have fought and challenged for every, everything that they have gotten every step of the way. And so they're used to fighting, and they're used to overcoming adversity, and they're used to succeeding. Mm-hmm. So I, I give you that as a uh, that goal setting. You know, attain those goals. Figure out where you want to go. Set those goals early and uh, and and drive towards those goals. To your observation about the uh, you know, Patella syndrome, what, what? Yeah, that, that was one example. I remember kids in my class got this thing called Patella femoral syndrome, or they got their IT band was this problem, or they got this ankle. What you know, the my ankles rolled. You know the. The, the medics at Bud's will see, instead of being you know, at a football practice and in one season they see whatever, in a whole season they'll see 10 bad ankle sprints. In Bud's they see that every week. Every, every week they see that. And they just see these injuries over and over again. And I was just wondering from your perspective what you saw, you know, what was the reason when someone says it went, why they quit? It's hard for me to comprehend that you enlist in the Navy, you know? You enlist in the Navy. When I enlisted in the Navy, I enlisted for six years in the Navy. I'm freaking 18 years old. I enlist for six years of my life. That's a what is that? A third of my life, right? <laughs> I enlist for a third of my life. I sign the dotted line. I tr- I run and swim to get ready. I go to boot camp. I put up with all that crap. Say goodbye to my friends and families. Go, you know, tell everyone, hey, I'm gonna go try and be a SEAL. Get through boot camp. Then finally show up to Bud's, and like the first day, after going through all that stuff, people are quitting. It's 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 hard to comprehend. Did you ever were you able to put together any kind of understanding of that? No, uh, and and uh, I've I've gotten into some uh, conversations with people who think that they've uh, come up with the uh, with the test that's going to show who's going to make it and who's not, and. Uh, <clears throat> As far as I'm concerned, they're full of horse manure. <laughs> Let's go back to my observations about those families of, of, of those successful kids. <clears throat> they have they have a sense of values. Uh, they, uh, you know, whether they know uh, right from wrong the way we would want it to be, uh, that's you know, that's uh, that's hard to say. But they have they have a sense of values that they have grown up with, uh, and and like the uh, the Naval Academy individuals that I've said, these individuals who succeed have set goals, and they they are de- very determined in getting to those goals. And like I said to the uh, to the family. We didn't give them something that they didn't have before they got here. And that's the thing that I don't know about. Uh, I will tell you out loud that I never thought about quitting in butts. Me neither. I puked 
you know, uh, you know I, I cramped. Uh, I used to, you know, I, I was the worst runner in the class. You know, everybody knows about getting a stitch in your side when you're running. I had a goddamn freight train running <laughs> through my liver. Uh, and uh, and it, I can't tell you how much it hurt. But I would actually say to myself, to my, to my you know, sniveling body, I would say, is that all you got? The as you go through training, it's all between the ears. You've got to have that goal in mind, and you've got to be willing to put up with whatever it is. There's a couple of things I'm going to say here. From the neck down is a life support system for the neck up, the, for the uh, for the brain housing group as we call it. It's all between the ears, and and I don't know who said it first. But there's an expression that I use about mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. <laughs> and and I, I mean, I can't tell you, uh, again, how, how, how much I, I hurt on those runs. As I, as I look at, uh, you know, so there's, there's something either right or wrong with, <laughs> with, with, <laughs> with a few thousand of our American service members called SEALs uh, that have this, that have this mindset. There is, a, there is definitely a mindset. It's not a killer mindset. It's a success mindset. It's uh, you know wolves and sheep mindset. You are, what, you are what you are. And I strongly believe that there are people like that. Uh, you know, my wife, my wife knows who I am. And, you know, don't, don't mess with me, you know. Uh, so... Uh, and and that's the way it is with 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 every seal I know. You you don't mess with the guy, and it's not just because of my size or Jocko's size. It's because of the attitude. You're gonna lose. Uh, you know, uh, Instructor Moy. One day, uh, I'm on the uh, <clears throat> I'm in the goon squad. I've uh, I've uh, I, I maintain for those of us that are old enough to remember there used to be a half a dozen pi- or a half a dozen palm trees uh, out in front of the hotel dell that go down to the uh, go down to the rocks where we do our rock portage. I maintain that I that that I have probably caused the death of at least one of those palm trees because I ended up puking at the bottom of those <laughs> because of what the what those guys made me do in the in the goon squad. It didn't matter. I didn't give a good goddamn what they did to me. They could not get that four-letter word out of me. Quit. It was not going to happen. I was. I was. We were down there by the rocks, and I'd done the. Uh, I'd done the roll in the surf, the roll in the in the uh, in the soft dry sand. We used to call them sugar cookies because now here I am. Uh, I'm coated in water and uh, and 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 white sparkling sand from the. Coronado Silver Strand, and I'm doing what's called the duck walk. So you're 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 squatting down, and you've got your hand fold, hands folded behind your head. And I will admit that I was not doing the duck walk without with any uh, degree of alacrity, shall we say? <laughs> was I feeling sorry for myself? You bet your ass. And instructor Moy comes up to me, and he, you know, like I say, I'm squatting down with my hands behind my head, you know, trying to squat, waddle, walk, whatever, towards the, uh, uh, towards the ocean. And Moy is roaring at me. He says, "What the hell are you giving it there, Ensign Richards?" 
and I looked up at him and I said, "Would you call? Would you believe a sick duck?" <laughs> and and I watched I watched Chief Moy have to turn around. <laughs> His shoulders are shaking, but uh, I was not I was not quitting. And 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 there's that there's that something that uh, all these psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever they are, they haven't quite been able to figure out what it is. Again, I keep going back to the goal setting. Go back to Today's training, young men, young men not only have to train in order to be able to pass the uh, pass the PFT. Uh, you know, if if they uh, if they if they only do the run in twelve and a half minutes, they ain't gonna make it through buds. And that's for a couple of reasons. It's not only because of the physical ability per se to do the run, but it's what I look at as the ability to recover. Because when you get to buds, if you haven't been doing this for years and years, uh, you know, if you haven't been running, if you haven't been swimming, if you haven't gotten, if you haven't been doing that for years, you are going to break down when you get to buds. So you have to really have built up your ability to recover. Okay, I didn't do a lot of swimming and I didn't do a lot of running in preparation for buds. But I was lifting weights at that time at pretty close to a damn pro level. And I was doing it 12 and a half, 13 months a year. Uh, that's, what I, uh, that's what I lived to do. I was, when I got the buds, I could do PT all day long. If I only had to do push-ups with my own body weight, that was a whole lot of doing repping out with 315 pounds. Ah, I only got to do a few push-ups? Oh, that's okay. Uh, it, I, I'm joking about that, but push-ups didn't bother me. And to uh, to uh, to the uh, to the Olympic swimmer we had in our class, you know, Fred was probably on vacation during those swims. Mm-hmm. You know, he probably fell asleep on the six mile swim out at uh, you know San Clemente <laughs> Island, <clears throat> but that gave Fred a chance to recover. When when I was doing PT, you know, the PT circle in the morning, okay. I knew that I, unless unless some instructor got really innovative, I probably wasn't going to have too much trouble with this. And so, if you've got something like the swim, or you're an incredible runner, and you can keep up with those instructors, uh, you know, through the soft sand runs, and not only is it not difficult for you physically, but because it's not difficult for you physically, it's an emotional break. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there's a certain amount of mental stress or mental strength that you don't have to use during that particular evolution. So if you're in really good shape, that takes a strain, a stress factor out of a particular event, run, swim, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. But even with that ability, uh, you know, we had a, uh, we had a high school or uh, junior college uh, miler who did a damn mile in something like four minutes and 10 or 15 seconds. You know, you clocked me with a damn calendar. <laughs> this, guy, this, this guy quit, you know. Uh, but you know, you, you you take off the uh, cute little nylon running shorts and you put on the uh, the cami pants and uh, the the boots and all of a sudden it's a different kind of running. Mm-hmm. But all that said, there has to be that mind that that mindset there. And in, in addition to that that physical capability, there's got to be that mindset. What it is, I I don't know. Every once in a while, you run into a guy. I have a, uh, a a classmate of mine. Um, I'm not going to mention his name because somebody's still on active duty. But uh, years ago, one of his sons was expressing uh, interest in the uh, in the teams, uh, and uh, that particular individual did did not 
get get to teams. Uh, he didn't uh, get to, uh, to to training for whatever reason it was. But we had gone down and we had spent some time with uh, my classmate. And as I'm driving back with uh, with Jackie, I said to Jackie, I said, "Sweetheart, Schmuckatelli is going to be the the member of that family that makes it through." There's just that feeling I got from that kid, uh, and yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every once in a while, yeah, you, you get that, uh, but but not often. It was it was his demeanor, it was his presence, uh, it was his. Uh, uh, his confidence, not cocky, but it, but it, but his confidence. You can't always see that, mm-hmm. uh, and and I was probably lucky in that uh, in in that judgment. Uh, but uh, he uh, he he made it. Uh, yeah, proud of him. Uh, but you know, to your point, uh, Jocko, I, I don't know what the it factor is. And you know, I look at the the confidence and the and, and the goal setting, and the uh, and the ability to recover to get you through. Uh, as you as you heard, I like to think if an individual's got a uh, got a specialty where he can uh, you know, take a break, uh, uh, that 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 will be very helpful to him. But uh, there's just there's some. Missing link there that uh, that I don't I don't know exactly what it is and it's just so hard to put your finger on. Did you notice anything from from when you went through in 1969 1970 and and then you fast forward what 20 something years? Was there anything that you said? Oh, they got soft over here. They, they got weak over here. This is easier or this is harder I'm gonna say it got harder and uh so I take over as the CEO of the uh, of the center, and uh, one of the things that I did was I I looked at uh, the the schedules for the uh, uh, each of the different phases, uh, and I, I also looked at you know the, all the schedules for the advanced training because one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to go out and and observe uh, you know observe the class, observe the instructors, yada yada. yada. I went and I spent time out at San Clemente Island when I was the uh, the commanding officer. Uh, you know, I went to uh, to wherever there was uh, wherever there was training. Uh, so <clears throat> I take over as a skipper and I'm looking at the uh, the training schedules. Now, when I went through training, I do not recall a training day that started before zero seven hundred. Hmm. We had to be on the line at zero seven hundred, and that was after breakfast. Mm-hmm. So we didn't you know, form up, uh, but uh, training started at uh, at zero seven hundred, and uh, <clears throat> I uh, got to training, and I'm looking at the uh, I'm looking at the schedule. The zero four hundred zero four hundred zero four hundred zero four. When I went through, it was early, and it, this particular thing that uh, jumped out at me was a zero five thirty. Or zero five, or zero five fifteen, four mile time run, and I'm saying, what the hell is this shit? <laughs> you know, I was saying that too. I was doing them. <laughs> so uh, whether it was the first phase or the second phase, you know, they came up to me and I said, you know, what are we doing here? Well, that's the. Uh, that's the uh, the only uh, only low tide, and that guy is one of the luckiest guys in naval special warfare. Because <laughs> my question was, how fucking stupid do I look? <laughs> 
one high tide in the morning, <laughs> one low tide in the morning, one high in the afternoon, one low in the afternoon. And uh, that that is not cast in stone because there are a certain number of days in the year uh, where you only have uh, you know combination of three tides. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you'll get two highs. And I said, do not even think about opening your mouth to say anything else about the tides. <laughs> but to my point, they were they they were now doing. Uh, four-mile time runs and maybe an O-course or uh, another session before breakfast. And uh, like I say, we, we didn't do that. Now, when we, uh, when we were out at San Clemente Island, there was no schedule. It was you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, other, other, otherwise, uh, you know, of course, there were, uh, there were night swims. Uh, you know, was, of course, when you get uh, – it wasn't like, uh, you know, seven to five every day. Yeah, you, you might have uh, – <clears throat> uh, you know, night, uh, you know, night navigation. Uh, we'd uh, we'd go up to different places for uh, orienteering and so on. And and again, uh, you 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 throw the clock out the window just because of uh, because of what you're doing. But uh, basically, uh, when uh, we were at the Strand, it was a uh, it was a seven to five or seven to five thirty. Or again, you, you talk about night dives mm-hmm. and so on. Of course, you're you know working until uh, you know ten, eleven, midnight, whatever it might be. Uh, so, uh, so it it has changed. They they are putting uh, at least uh, twelve or fifteen pounds into a ten pound bag. Uh, I mean, they are really uh, they're they're using every 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 minute of the day. So, if somebody asks me, "Is training hard today?" You bet your ass it is. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the kids are in better shape. They're all they're all in better shape. So, like, if you're running with your boat crew, you're you're running with guys that are able to run faster, so you better better be able to run faster. They're just all in better shape. I was over there a couple of years ago, and one of my buddies was now a civilian working there, and we were having the same conversation. And we were standing out by the first phase office, and he, you know, there's a hundred helmets lined up, and and he said, you know, he goes, look at these hundred whatever it was, hundred and twenty two helmets. He goes, every one of these guys, I'm telling you, was a stud, and they're gone. He's like, this program is hard. <laughs> I said, yeah, Roger that. It's a hard freaking program. It is. And, and, and it, as he said, uh, every one of those 120 guys was a stud. And, and it goes to that, th- that missing factor in there. What is that, you know, what is it that caused you to put up with all that crap? <laughs> you know why did you do that? Some some of it is you know uh, just perseverance, perseverance, you know bullheadedness and so on. But there's there's some other factor in there. Yeah, we wanted to uh, you know wanted to do something for uh, for our country. Uh, we wanted to do the best job that we could. And we wanted to, do, and as a result, we selected what we thought was the uh, the hardest. I didn't realize that when I did that. You know, you know, fifty years ago, that wasn't that it that it wasn't known that way. Uh, but I I I, ch- I knew that it was going to be hard. Uh, and I selected it anyway. Uh, in today's day envi- environment, uh, every one of these kids knows it's going to be a ball buster. It's going to be hard, uh, and and yet they yet they select that. There's there's a missing factor why those young Americans decide to do that. I can't I can't put my finger on all that. And, and there's that missing factor about what it is that enables these individuals to put up with what is arguably the most difficult training, you know, in, uh, in the military in the world. Did you think you were going to become an admiral? 
Never. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, what number SEAL Admiral were you? Number five? So there'd been, there'd been four prior to you. How'd that go down? How'd, that, how'd, that, how'd you hear about that? About the fact that I... <laughs> about all the above, I guess. Well, I mean, uh, you must have been thinking, hey, all right, I'm going to get done with this tour. I'll be a captain. I'm going to retire because... Well, I... Uh, Jocko, I, I, I will not ever claim to have been the sharpest tool in the shed, but I was probably one of the hardest working motherfuckers in the, in the building. Uh, I took one particular job uh, you know, from a friend of mine, and I remember him saying, yeah, you know, first couple of weeks, three weeks, you know, you might be here till 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock, something like that. But after that, you get it down, you'll be out of here at 4.30 every day. Well... I never left at 4.30 in the entire two years that I had the job. Uh, and uh, it was, like I said, I worked as, as hard as I could uh, in whatever job it was. And the other thing that I will say is I think you really have to be who you are somewhere around 724. Uh, when I was selected to flag officer, uh, Admiral Lemoyne, Chuck Lemoyne, was the Navy SEAL on the board. <clears throat> there were a number of guys a year or two senior to me uh, that I had a high expectation that you know Tom, Dick, or Harry was going to be uh, uh, you know, selected uh, during that period of time. But that was my uh, you know basically my first time up. Uh, you have to have uh, completed your. Uh, a major command tour uh, you know, to uh, to be eligible, and then you got you usually got three looks. But uh, so anyway, Chuck was on the on the board, and I had worked for uh, for Admiral Lemoyne uh, when uh, he was uh, Group One commander. And as I said, you have to be who you are. Seven twenty four. Well, when I was working for Chuck, uh, I was the uh, I was the first relatively senior officer uh, in the building uh, uh, in, in, in the day. Uh, you know, I usually beat the chief of staff in. I usually beat the, uh, uh, beat the commodore in all the time because, uh, you know, it, it, our job was to pre- prepare, the, uh, uh, prepare the environment before he showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anyway, uh, there, was a, uh, there was an individual in the organization uh, who, was, uh, who was up for captain and didn't get selected. And uh, because I was there, and it was out here on the West Coast, uh, you remember Margaret? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Margaret the detailer, uh, great, great lady. She, uh, she, did, she did well by me on uh, more than one occasion. But, uh, me too. <laughs> anyway, uh, Margaret, uh, Margaret called out uh, asking for the chief of staff. He wasn't there. About the Commodore, he's not there. He says, "Well, here's the deal. You know, so and so didn't. Uh, you know, the uh, the O six list is uh, is coming out, and uh, you know, you know, Schmuckatelli is not on it. And we wanted to give uh, Lemoyne the chance to uh, uh, to prep him before uh, before everybody else saw that, and uh, so that he'd be prepared for any bad news. So uh, Admiral Lemoyne gets." Uh, and captain at the time um, gets in uh, ten or fifteen minutes before the uh, morning uh, you know, meeting at uh, eight o'clock, and 
by uh, by habit or custom, uh, he didn't like to be interrupted before the uh, before the meeting. He uh, he wanted to prepare himself as well. <laughs> so I banged on the door and barge on in, and I said, "Excuse me, Captain, uh, you need to hear this." Uh, and uh, so I shared the uh, shared the news and uh, left the office. So uh, it was it was my job to uh, to herd the cats and get everybody into the uh, to the briefing uh, room in the morning, and uh, there were a few of us standing in the uh, in the hallway, smoking and joking as you usually do, uh, yeah, getting ready to go in and sit uh, sit in a meeting that uh, you know will be sixty minutes of your life that you'll never regain. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, we uh, we're smoking and joking, and uh, uh, Captain Moyne comes down the passageway and. Uh, he uh, he made a uh, observation. And said, I guess I can imagine what you're uh, talking about. Uh, and uh, my take on that was he thought I might have shared the uh, situation with the guy who did not get selected. Uh, and I I turned to the uh, turned to the captain and said, "No, captain, we're uh, that's 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 not on the agenda. It's not uh, anything that I felt that uh, was uh, in my purview to share with anybody." And it's things like that when. You're dealing with you know, junior officers and senior officers that that leave an impression. And I think I I think I left that impression on uh, on, on Captain Lemoyne. So when uh, several years later he's uh, he's on the uh, on the flag board, uh, he had some personal experience with uh, who I was and what my values were. Uh, and so that's that's kind of how how that that works. I believe uh, you, you got to work hard. Uh, you gotta, you gotta do well. You can't do some, you know, some, some stupid things. But uh, I have to tell you that I just wanted to do as good a job as I could, and take care of all the people working for me that I could, uh, and uh, and and I think it paid off. Uh, people like uh, Abel Worthington and uh, yeah, Abel Lemoyne. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, the two of them uh, had a had a conversation about uh, you know who was gonna who's gonna get selected. So. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, at that time, there just wasn't that many SEAL admirals. So. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> you had, uh, no, there there absolutely weren't. Uh, and, uh, or I guess not Worthington, probably Smith. I think Worthington was retired by then. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, I mean, you just got to be who you are, 724. And, uh, uh, you know, working harder than everybody else helps being there uh, when it counts. I said that I might have said that there was a short list when I raised my hand to uh, go to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, they only needed one line on the list. Uh, there, were, you know, there were no other volunteers sure. at, the, at that point in time. Uh, and 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 the leadership of the community, uh, you know, recognizes those things. Mm-hmm. And it, the last the last place Tom Richards wanted to go after being CEO of SEAL Team One was to Naval Sea Systems Command and sit at a desk <laughs> and and do procurement and research and development. I couldn't even spell it. If it hadn't been for Tommy Hawkins, the community would have been in deep kimchi. Oh boy! So you end up going and taking over what we call Naval Special Warfare Command, which means you're in charge of all the SEALs, all the special boat units, all in charge of basic SEAL training, advanced SEAL training, you're in charge of everything. And that was, that, that had to be a pretty, a pretty climactic moment for you to take command. El Jocko, uh, 
that was uh, that was an incredible opportunity uh, and and an incredible honor to uh, uh, to be selected to uh, to have that job uh, to lead a community like Naval Special Warfare. Uh, not everybody who gets selected to fly gets the opportunity for that job. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I am thankful to the leadership of our community, you know, again, Admiral LeMoyne, uh, for, uh, for giving me, Admiral LeMoyne and Admiral Smith, for giving me that, uh, that opportunity. Uh, and uh, those were some of my uh, most, most rewarding years. Now, we were still in our, if you will, early years with Special Operations Command. Uh, we were still in our early years of uh, somewhat of a divorce from the Navy, uh, if you will, because uh, you know uh, my uh, I had uh, had two two people I uh, reported to, you know one was a uh, a Joint Service Commander, Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marine. Uh, down there in Tampa, and uh, the other was a, uh, a code up on the uh, on the OPNAV staff. You know, ultimately, of course, to the CNO. But uh, the uh, the money was you know, there's there's something called the golden rule. He what's got the gold rules, <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the the money at that time was from SOCOM, uh, and uh, that's where you know the vast majority of my uh, my attention went. But uh, Going back to the uh, to the opportunities, uh, there were so many things uh, so many things going on in the uh, in the world, uh, uh, and and specifically when it, within our community, uh, there was a, uh, a captain by the name of uh, Todd Vesey. He was not a captain at the time, but Todd was uh, stationed down at uh, Navy Military Personnel uh, Command. Uh, after I believe that was after they had uh, it was after they had uh, shifted down to uh, to Memphis. And what Todd did was he carried the water for our efforts to create the SWIC community. Uh, you know, when I uh, when I took over as CO Special Boat Unit 13, we had fleet sailors coming to drive these small boats. The engines, the uh, you know, quote main propulsion engines of a uh, uh, 65 foot Mark III patrol boat were a uh, Detroit V Detroit Diesel 8V 71Ti, uh, I think, uh, and uh, it was a long time ago. But that engine was usually, if they saw it on a ship, that might be an auxiliary diesel generator not the main propulsion engine. They might not have ever have seen it. So you get a, a, an engineman from the fleet who's never seen your engine. Uh, you get a gunner's mate from his fleet who's looking for the five-inch gun. Uh, you get, a, uh, you get a, a communications or electronics technician who's looking for, uh, you know, CIC. It ain't there. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, you need to learn about the M60, the Prick 77, um, you, know, you, you name it, uh, that they've never seen before in their life. So we'd get these guys for two or three years. They'd learn a lot about Naval Special Warfare, then boom, they're gone. <clears throat> I took over as uh, CEO of the center, and uh, we had continuing conversations with the then current COs of the uh, special boat units. Uh, they were called units then, not teams. Uh, and uh, they decided that they wanted the center to host a, uh, a training program for their, uh, for their fleet guys coming in. 
We were still losing them after three years, mm-hmm. but they wanted to, instead of having to learn all this uh, on the job, let's, let's put it together and teach them about this special warfare stuff that they're now in the middle of. So we started out the first class with a three-and-a-half-week class. And when we laid it out as a three-and-a-half-week class, they were concerned <clears throat> that that was too much time. Uh, you know, to have these guys away from the team. Now, of course, because they were away from the team, that means that they had a boat or two that was not manned. So you know, understand that. They finished up with the class. The skippers were so charged that the next class was a five-week class that they, they decided. And that all grew. So I go from CO Special Boat Unit 13 with the problem, trying to solve part of it as the uh, as the commanding officer of the center <clears throat> and now when I get to the uh, to be the commander of naval special warfare I was able to convince the navy to create the SWIC NEC mm-hmm. and uh, that was just uh, yeah that was <clears throat> just I think a a great accomplishment for the community and I have to look at <clears throat> Folks like Todd Vesey and congratulate them and thank them for their work. Uh, and there was a uh, there was a boat guy, Master Chief uh, Kelly Webb. Uh, unfortunately, Kelly has since passed, uh, but Kelly was a uh, was a big prime mover in that as well. And I will also say that uh, uh, at one point in time, when I was looking for the uh, for the next uh, you know, command. Uh, or the force master chief for naval special warfare, it came down to Kelly and a uh, and, and a Trident winner. Oh. Uh, so those those are the last two guys standing. Uh, but uh, he was uh, he was quite a guy. So establishment of the uh, of the Swick uh, Swick community was something that was uh, uh, just uh, just outstanding. And it's now it's a rate and everything. Yep. And guys go in. That's their career. They can go in and have their whole career in special special boat team. In one of the you know it, it it's. I, I remember having a uh, get together. Uh, I, I, <clears throat> I talked to as many folks as I could on each coast, and uh, I, I remember t- you know saying to folks, "I said, guys, you know this is this is this is hard for me because so much of my time is going to be directed upward. You know whether it's you know budget personnel matters that uh, that I'm going to have to work with SOCOM and the uh, and, and the Navy. Uh, when I walked in and took command at uh, at Naval Special Warfare." There was a, a relatively new building that didn't come close to accommodating the staff at Naval Special Warfare Command. When I walked in, uh, six, eight, ten, maybe it was twenty trailers surrounding the building. You know, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I, I referred to Naval Special Warfare Command's facility as trailer park trash. And uh, you know, here we are. This you know, you know, sitting right next to the uh, uh, to those uh, those gorgeous multi million dollar condominiums. They're looking down on a trailer park. I'm sure they love that. So the first budget cycle that I went into with uh, with the uh, four star commander down there in uh, in Tampa, and and I you know stood up and I pounded the table and I said, "Look at this building you guys got." You know, look at the addition you're putting on. I said, yeah, I walked in and I've got I've got my people working in trailers, in trailers. And uh, long story short, because it's the way things work, we got that much. We got an accelerated military construction program that you know clearly wasn't done by the time I uh, I, I left command. But 
that was that became one of the top priorities for the SOCOM uh, SOCOM MILCOM budget to uh, to get us uh, some buildings. And I'll go one step further. Uh, you know, this afternoon I'm getting a chance to go down and uh, and uh, and view. Uh, uh, the new uh, new facilities for uh, for SEAL Team One. That whole naval special warfare complex down there is billions of dollars. More importantly, that says that that billion dollar figure was high enough on the priority list to get funded. That says that SOCOM and the United States Navy and the Department of Defense recognized the commitment required to retain the capability that naval special warfare provides to our military readiness. They understand that and they're funding it. It's not just a bunch of new buildings. It says so much more than that. Yeah, that that is so impressive what's down there, what they built for and it's all the all the West Coast SEAL team down there. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. It's like I, I mean, I remember when I got to SEAL Team One and checked in, it was very underwhelming. I mean, we, we kinda I guess our building I don't know what year that building was built where SEAL Team One was but it was maybe 10 years old, maybe 15 years old, something I'll like that. I'll tell you when it was built because it was uh, it was turned over to me as a CO of SEAL Team 1 in 1986. So the building was five or six years old, <clears throat> I guess, when I got there in 1991. And, it, I mean, all it was was pretty much like a little office building, had some had some lockers in it, but it was it was underwhelming. You know, the gym where I worked out with you was just, you know, it was just a normal gym. It looked like somebody threw together whatever random equipment. Um, I think we had we had two squat racks. I mean, it was just kind of hodgepodge. And you didn't expect that. You know, it was the whole and the whole thing kind of felt hodgepodge, I guess is what I'm saying. You you go now now check out that facility, you're gonna be it's like a f it's like the James Bond movie. You know the James Bond movie where they're training commandos somewhere and they open up a door and there's people rappelling down, there's pools and all this shooting ranges. That's what it's like. It's 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 phenomenal that that the nation has made that a priority to to put these guys in the right spot. A few years ago, I had the chance to go up to uh, go up to Alaska, and uh, we've got a, a training facility up there in Alaska. And I was stunned to see the improvements that have been made to that uh, to that training facility uh, to include a God, it must be a fifty or sixty foot climbing wall in there. Just, uh, just absolutely amazing. And, and again, those those improvements, you know, you know, not only speak to the readiness, but also speak to the recognition of the uh, of the of the leadership of our uh, of our military and the importance of the special operations community. Yeah, and it's just such a great way to support those those guys. You know, the last thing I did before I retired was run the training on the West Coast for guys getting ready to deploy. And just there's nothing more important than making sure that guys are ready to go do that job. Absolutely. Uh, you know, speaking of your trip down to SEAL Team One, uh, you're you're doing that this afternoon. We're probably a little over three hours right now. Um, what did you do? What did you do once you retired? Uh, I got the uh, I got the chance to work for a uh, <clears throat> a boat company uh, up in uh, up in New Hampshire, and I I worked for a, uh, a gentleman who's uh, you know probably. Uh, uh, Probably not much shy of uh, you know a uh, uh, a genius. Uh, we uh, uh, we developed a, a boat uh, called the uh, uh, called the Ghost, and uh, you know Greg Sankoff is the gentleman's name. 
and so many innovative things that he put into this. Uh, and I, you know, Navy's just not uh, just not ready for that craft, perhaps yet. And of course, there's a few other challenges to get it into fit and be interoperable with uh, with uh, you know, systems that uh, we have available today. But uh, that was a uh, that was a fun experience. Uh, I had the chance to take what I had learned as the uh, uh, as a naval special warfare program officer at Nav C, uh, and, and of course knowing what I knew about the uh, the requirements of uh, of naval special warfare and you know what some of the things that they could do. That was a that was a a, a real fun job, mm-hmm. and I and I also worked for a uh, for an Alaskan Navy company. Uh, uh, Alaskan Native companies uh, are uh, minority owned and, uh, and operated by Alaskan Natives. Uh, we have uh, we have other uh, you know s- small business uh, set aside. Uh, you know, there's uh, are, are there uh, also. Uh, uh, Set asides for the uh, you know black uh, Hispanic community. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but in in any American Indians, uh, so they had uh, special uh, contractual uh, advantages, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I saw, uh, whether it was for the uh, uh, Alaskan natives, Native Americans, uh, these folks would take those advantages. And do a good job, whatever it was that was uh, uh, requested or required. And in the uh, in the contracting world, defense uh, the defense department contracting world, there is a requirement for major contractors to have a percentage of minority contracts. Yeah. Uh, one of the neatest things that I saw about this company, uh, and 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 the company's name is uh, Alutic, and Fognac is the apparent company, but the the programs that they had for the development of their uh, uh, of their tribal members were were, were absolutely amazing. Uh, Carl, who ran the computer uh, side of uh, uh, of things, was uh, uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, he, uh, he he was a uh, he's a native. Who you know went to school on the scholarship programs, you know, you know college masters and so on, and uh, he just you know, had such a uh, impressive computer system for the uh, for the entire company. And I say that because I've never worked anywhere else who was anywhere near as good. <laughs> if you hear this one, Carl, <laughs> you owe me a beer. Uh, but uh, just and, and Carl was one, and there uh, there were a couple of a uh, couple of young ladies in the uh, in the in the company uh, who were. Uh, uh, just you know, uh, a pleasure to work with. Uh, when you saw uh, that they were, if you will, a product of the system, and 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 it proved what a good job that they were doing. Uh, you know, they whether it was a college or, or, or vocational technical training, uh, they had all kinds of programs set up for uh, for their folks. It wasn't, you know, you know. Uh, you know, five or ten thousand bucks every uh, every uh, six months or mm-hmm. a year, whatever it was. They had all these great programs uh, set up, and and uh, they uh, they would take those uh, take those funds uh, and take the profits and build a fund and so on. I was I was pretty impressed with uh, with how they did it, and and I only say this much about it is because of you know some of the uh, bad press that some of uh, uh, the people have given it and, and how uh, how it was non-competitive, et cetera. 
They, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of competition among those <laughs> those Alaskan Native uh, you know companies, uh, uh, and uh, and they and they they did a damn good job. Uh, so it's quite an impressive program, and again, an opportunity to learn, uh, you know, so much about uh, the Alaskan natives. It's just uh, uh, great opportunity. Their base uh, is on Kodiak Island, where our training facility is. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their corporate headquarters, their real business offices are, are, are in Anchorage. So I get to start meeting a number of the you know the natives, you know. All the board members were uh, were were, uh, were natives, and uh, many of them uh, had spent a lot of time on on Kodiak, where we have our training facility. And then they learn that I'm a retired SEAL, and they tell me about the time those goddamn SEALs, you know, walked across <laughs> these uh, 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 you know special uh, you know sacred uh, you know burial grounds or areas that were set aside and they weren't supposed to be, uh, but. Uh, uh, I believe those fences uh, fences are mended, not not due to anything that I did, uh, but uh, there are a couple of uh, a couple of folks who have whatever uh, acreage they have on uh, either a Fognac or a Kodiak, and uh, and they allow the uh, the seals to as they're conducting some of their missions up there uh, to use some of that. Uh, uh, property to uh, to touch base and uh, use the staging points and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was really fun for me to see that relationship uh, a couple of years ago when I went up to uh, to Alaska. Where were you when September 11th happened? I was uh, I was driving in my truck. I was working for SAIC at the time, and I was coming up from uh, from Virginia Beach, headed to uh, headed to DC. And uh, my wife was uh, my wife was uh, up, uh, you know, working uh, in uh, in, D- in uh, Vienna with uh, with a friend of hers. And uh, so I'm in my truck and I hear this, and I called Jackie and I said, "Get a tank of gas, and uh, when you can get out of there, get out of there." Uh, when I heard it, and by the time I had a chance to get hold of her, <clears throat> it was too late. So I was headed on into uh, to SAIC, and I knew that whatever had been, uh, uh, you know, I forget exactly what I was going up there for, but I knew that that was out the window. Uh, and I said to myself, uh, I was, uh, I think I was about Fredericksburg uh, when I heard it. I said, well, if I keep coming north, I'm not going to be home for a long time. Uh, and I just, just knew that. And uh they took uh, a few of us with military experience, and we set up a, uh, a talk, and we set up, uh, you know, started setting up phone trees, trying to find uh, find out who was where and how everybody was, and so it was uh, it was quite a uh, quite an interesting experience from that side of things. Mm-hmm. And then, what did it look like to you as you watched the the SEAL teams start to engage in the in the in the war on terror? So, uh, shortly after that, my wife and I are sitting at home watching a, uh, a news show, and they're showing something about the Northern Alliance doing this, that, and the other thing, and they showed two big open back trucks. We'd call them a four-by-four, four, or rather a six-by, or something like that, and uh, I, looked at the, uh, I looked at the video, and I said to Jackie, I said, sweetheart, that truck is filled with Afghans. 
that truck is our guys. Well, how can you tell? I say, I can tell by the way they sit, I can tell by their posture, and I can tell by the way they hold their weapons. Look at the differences. So, oh. And uh, <clears throat> I knew I knew right then it was going to be uh, you know quite a uh, quite a deal. Uh, because of the uh, work I was doing with uh, SAIC, I had the opportunity to sit in on a briefing that was uh, given by the chief of naval operations at the time, and uh, he had been with the president just a few days before, and as he uh, recounted his uh, experience with the uh, with the president, uh, you you. Could have heard a pin drop in the room, uh, given the uh, the commitment uh, and the uh, uh, will to fix that. And I guess what are you up to right now? <laughs> you retired yet for real? Uh, I, I'm I'm retired for real. Uh, before I leave, I'll give you a business card that says leadership, uh, management, and motivation. But uh, uh, I uh, I work with a few kids every once in a while who've got a desire to go to Bud's, uh, but uh, you know Jackie and I are supporting a uh, a wildlife museum in uh, in Virginia Beach, and uh, other than that, we're uh, we're pretty much uh, pretty much retired. But uh, anybody wants a uh, an old fart with an opinion, uh, you know. Give me a call. <laughs> well, like I said, I know you got another appointment this afternoon, uh, going to check out the teams. Uh, probably a good place to wrap up. Echo, you got any questions? Yes. All right, here we go. We still lifting weights or what? Well, <laughs> given the uh, seven plus decades I've been on the face of the earth, yes, uh, the uh, yeah, you know, few and uh, few and far between, I've uh, I've actually uh, just in the last five or six weeks uh, started to uh, to to go back in the gym. Uh, but uh, it's something I'll never stop. Uh, yeah. and, and and the reason for it is, yeah, at uh, at seventy four years of age, I don't have to hire somebody to cut my lawn. I can still go out there. And I can yeah. do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't have to. I don't have to hire somebody to move those boxes around the house. I don't have to hire somebody to move that dresser. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can. I can still do that. And that's that's not only speaking to my physical well-being. It's speaking to my medical well-being. Mm-hmm. I'm excuse me, my mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Just to be able to do that. Yeah. Do you got a gym at your house? Uh, I've, I've got a few hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so here you go. <clears throat> when I went down to El Salvador, I went unaccompanied for a year. And uh, with that, I was able to send uh, uh, 1,000 pounds or 1,100 pounds of, uh, of personal gear. <laughs> 700 pounds of weightlifting equipment. <laughs> I, I, had, I, I had squat racks. A bench and at least five hundred pounds of uh, pounds of weights in my own room, <coughs> in my own uh, in my own building. Uh, when I uh, there was a the, the guy I, uh, I relieved was assassinated, uh, but they actually had a goals in El Salvador. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll give that a shot. And so I I went to goals a few times and <clears throat> I'm deadlifting five and a half or whatever, and. Uh, not drawing any attention to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Stupid with a capital S. And uh, I ended up getting, you know, I found out from a certain intelligence agency that uh, my nickname in the gym was El Grua, which <laughs> stands for the crane. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, 
Next thing I uh, I hear, uh, the colonel I mentioned before calls me into the office and he said, uh, we got a report that uh, there's some folks taking notice of your attendance at Gold's. <laughs> I said, ah, oh, shit. And so that was the last time I went to Gold's. Oh, man. But... Well, look, we, we got a bunch of stories out of you today. Uh, like I said, I know you got to go. Um, you got any closing thoughts you want to say? Uh, I had a great 30 years, a lot of good guys. And I'll tell you, one, one important closing thought. Uh, uh, when I took over in 96, we were still deploying SEAL platoons the same way, same way I walked out the door in 1970. 26 years. A lot of things have changed in those 26 years. Uh, Captain Pete Tonys and Stan, damn it, uh, both guys who'd been uh, group commanders on the East Coast had come in and had uh, pitched a uh, uh, pitched a, uh, a recommended change of how to do business. Uh, and we were calling it the squadron deployment. Mm-hmm. So what I did at that point in time is I sat down with uh, uh, with Admiral Smith, who was still uh, still on active duty, uh, and uh, yeah, Admiral Eric Olson, and a couple of other folks. And I said, guys, this is what I think we want to do. Uh, you may not be aware, but in the uh, 84, 85 time frame, we had tried uh, something like that with uh, with SEAL Team 1, and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. We'll go into those details. But I sat down with Admiral Smith, Admiral Olson, because I knew, I knew Eric was going to be following. Well, maybe it didn't by that point in time, but my goal was to make sure Eric was going to be the next flag officer. <clears throat> Anyhow, good judgment on my part, by the way. Uh, <laughs> better better work by Eric. Uh, but uh, I sat down with those guys, and I said, guys, this is what I this is what I think we should do. Now, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but so what I did is I, I went, after talking to those guys, I went back uh, and we set up a uh, set up a working group on the on the WARCOM staff. And the senior guy in the working group was probably a, ca- a commander. And I said, guys, the last thing I ever want to hear is the admiral said or the admiral wants, other than the fact that I want to figure out how to make this work. I think we I think we need to change how we're doing business. We had O4s down to E6s on that uh, on that working group to figure out how to make it work. And uh we uh we didn't get it uh, we didn't get it fielded by the time I uh by the time I left uh, command uh but we had the uh we had the core of uh, of what we were looking at. We were already already looking at uh, you know, different uh, team deployments and how we were going to change that all. So we'd have one team uh, with uh, boat guys, intelligence support, logistics support, that kind of thing, uh, deploying forward. And uh, as I as I stopped and, and, and looked today, uh, it looks a whole lot different than uh, than what what walked out the door finally under Eric Olson. But I am I am so proud of Stan and Pete uh, of uh, bringing that to me and uh, us us taking that and uh, and laying the groundwork because this is now uh, this is now twenty two going on 23 years after we started working on that and here naval special warfare with you know lipstick on the uh, on the pig in a certain number of places but it's it's still the same pig 
uh, and uh, uh, or it's the uh, probably it, it's probably a boar hog by now, uh, but it's uh, it, it's what we uh, it's what we started framing at that point in time as the uh, as a way for naval special warfare uh, to do business. And uh, and again, uh, I'm proud of that working group. Proud of Pete and Stan uh, and uh, the other guys agreeing because. I didn't, like I said, I didn't want to start going down this road if somebody was going to, you know, throw out, you know, dozens of man years of work and planning to, uh, uh, to, to toss it out. So that was uh, that in, in, in combination with uh, the, uh, the SWIC NEC uh, were the, the, the two things that, uh, that I figure were probably the uh, you know, best accomplishments that, uh, uh, that, I, uh, that I ever had. Let me add one more thing. You talked earlier about... Uh, Working with the uh, uh, the physical therapists and so on, uh, you need to uh, to go back and uh, thank uh, uh, I believe it was Pete Tonys uh, who who started that uh, you know bringing in those uh, those physical therapists uh, to work with the uh, with the with the team guys. Uh, but there's you know, it's it, it's interesting for me to hear your comments on how important those kinds of things are were to you in, in your career. And I think you know. Way to go there, Pete! You know uh, those guys were uh, those guys were doing some uh, some good things. So, but those are the uh, those are the two biggest things that uh, that I'm probably proudest of. Uh, that that and uh, and Petty Officer uh, Bacchus coming up to me at SEAL Team One. Well, that's outstanding, and and that transition that you started that you initiated uh, that got pushed to you, I guess, up through the chain of command to to redo the way we were deploying. I mean, the the way the deployments went. Eventually, once the war started, we would have been just kind of worthless, you know, being a random platoon out there by yourself. You just you just don't have the value that you need to bring to the battlefield. And and what we were able to do as giant squadrons with all the augmentees, with all the logistical support, that's what we needed. And and look, didn't mean we lost our ability to be nimble because we could still take a platoon from that squadron and kick them out to some random outstation. You could have a f- five or six man element. I had I had little elements sitting in tiny spots out on their own, and but we were able to do that because of that that squadron idea came to fruition. And otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to been functional. One other thing contributed to the success of that squadron. Uh, when you first came in the teams, were uh, were platoons still deploying on the amphibs? Yep, I did two amphib deployments myself. I'd, so I did one. My first deployment was to Guam, and then I did back to back ARG platoons out here in San Diego, six months on the ship. Well, being able to take the platoons off the ARG was another key part of that, and I can remember going to Sinkus Navier. Four-star admiral saying, this is what I want to do, and this is how I want to do it. And uh, that is, when the amphibs try to do advanced force ops, that means you got to get those amphibious ships Mm -hmm. within a few miles of the coast. You're not doing anything advanced force. Uh, and one of the terms that they want that they use is doing in stride amphibious operations, so they can just drive up to the beach and do their thing. But if you have to stop and let the seals do their thing, yeah, you're sitting there with a uh, with a bullseye on you. So I had to be somewhat tactful with Sinkus mm-hmm. Navier. Uh, yeah, because no no <coughs> leaders ever want to give up their assets. They don't want to give them up. Nope, they they, they did not. Uh, and so I explained to him how 
a submarine and, and explain to him, uh, you know, uh, Jim was a uh, <laughs> Jim was a you know, commanding officer of a nuclear aircraft carrier. Probably not much I have to explain to him. <laughs> but as as uh, as I laid it out to him, I said, you know, we you know we have these uh, <clears throat> theater special operations commands and these forces allocated to them. They're not only Navy special warfare. They're Army and Air Force assets that are available to you there. And you can get there by submarine. You can get there by C-130. You can get rubber ducks. There are no C-130s on the amphibs that I've that I've seen, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, "Well, well, who's gonna who's gonna pay for that?" Uh, you know, the uh, I said, "We are Naval Special Warfare and U.S. Special Operations Command." He said, "Sold." And uh, that's that's how we uh, that's that's the third biggest thing that I feel that uh, uh, that I can uh, yeah, hang my hat on in uh, in my career. Uh, you know, getting getting people to finally understand if you want to do something in stride for the amphibs, you're probably going to launch that uh, that reconnaissance from somewhere else. Yep, as it should be. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> outstanding, outstanding stuff. Uh, I, I'm. You open invite anytime you come back if you listen to this and there's other things you want to talk about that you missed uh, scratch them down on a piece of paper this this place is yours uh, it's been an honor to sit down and talk with you um, you know obviously thanks for everything that you did for the country for the teams for the Navy um, and thanks for putting some faith in a e4 that came to your office wanting to request and you you legitimately changed the trajectory of my life and and that's how I ended up here. So it's been an honor, and thank you. Well, thank you, Jocko. And uh, I don't know if you knew it, but uh, for the first two or three years that they had that seaman to admiral program, and I guess you were in like the second year. I was. Naval Special Warfare, you and the other boys that went in there, uh, you guys were the top four candidates each year. <laughs> we're just trying to hold up the line. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Thanks, sir. Appreciate it. All right. The Hulk has departed the area of operations. The it's just freaking crazy to sit here. Kind of like it was crazy with with Mike Durant. Yeah, when I was watching him on TV after he'd been captured in Somalia, and I was watching him in 1993 as a young SEAL new guy, and yeah. now we're sitting here talking to him. Think of how crazy this is. Here I am talking to Admiral Richards, who literally wrote the recommendation for me to become a SEAL officer. In nineteen, what was that? Thirty years ago, twenty-five years ago, something like this. Yeah, and he's legendary SEAL mm-hmm. from SEAL Team One, where I'm from. He was the commanding officer of SEAL Team One. Right before I showed up, he was. He was the commanding officer of Buds. By the way, when I graduated, mm-hmm. and here he is, just right there, debriefing. Yeah. I'll tell you what's awesome, and I was talking to him about this a little bit. I was telling him that when Mike Thornton came on the podcast and I had, I forget when Mike Thornton actually retired, but we overlapped in time. You know, I was in for a while while he was in. Not not very long because he retired probably somewhere around when I came in. I don't know. But, but there was overlap time. There was time he was in the teams. He was a SEAL Team 1 guy. He was a Medal of Honor recipient. Legendary, Le- legendary. Like you need to put music behind that when I say it on the <laughs> like in post. So, so Mike Thornton. But as much as I knew who Mike Thornton was, I had met him. You know, I had met him multiple times. I had also met him when Mikey Monsoor 
when when his parents were given Mikey's Medal of Honor at the White House, like Mike Thornton was there, we we talked, we hung out, we drank beers. Like I know him, mm-hmm. and I had never gotten any kind of a debrief about the the operation where he ended up receiving the Medal of Honor until he came on the podcast and gave us a two-hour full detailed debrief mm. on why he received the Medal of Honor. So it's the same thing here. Like I had known that Admiral Richards was, you know, a badass Vietnam guy. That's, you know, that's just, there's a whole category. When you're a new guy in the teams yeah. in the 90s, there's no, just like a whole, there's a whole group. Yeah. And it's just like, oh yeah, a Nam guy. Yeah. And you're not in that group or even close to it. Because mm. now it's 1991 when I'm checking in. Vietnam's been over for a long time. Mm. But that, that, that's, the, that's the group. Yeah. And you don't know too much about them. Mm. You don't understand. You couldn't debrief like the debrief that he went through today. How awesome is that? Mm. It's, it's just, hey, here's exactly what happened. Here's what was going on. Here's what I said. Here's the words that came out of my mouth. Here's the here's what the other individual. Here's where the helicopter. Just hearing these details, and understanding them, it's just so. I'm so lucky to be sitting here. Yeah, this the the whole time. Um, these thoughts flash in my head. Like, okay, imagine if you're like a you know a VC guy mm-hmm. or you know NVA guy, mm-hmm. and you for whatever reason. Get face to face with this motherfucker right here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say I don't know. You guys yeah. lost all your weapons or whatever, and now you got to go hand to hand. You're till surrendering the, till the death. You're surrendering with this like freaking the most guy. hard, the most hardened, <laughs> the most hardened NVA, like just warrior. He's surrendering. He's just like, hey, I'm done, bro. Forget the wrestling kid who got body slammed yeah. in a concussion. Yeah. Forget that guy, yeah. bro. This guy is yeah. going. Down. Yeah, you're going down. Well, like, no you can tell, can. and you could, you know, he threw his numbers out, right? I mean, yeah. he's throwing out oh, his yeah. numbers. Oh yeah. But you can just tell too. Some people are strong. Yeah. Like they're just genetically freaking strong. Yeah. And by the way, when you're 14 years old after your freshman year, and you weigh 140 pounds, and the the 170 pound wrestling coach comes out and can't hold you down, mm-hmm. and you're not that good of a wrestler, yeah. but you're just doing it on pure power, <laughs> you're one of those dudes. Bro, yes. You are just a strong, yeah. jacked yeah. dude. It's not even just jacked, it's like the genetic, that that dense, just strong freaking muscle. Yep. And he's just made of that, just yeah. made of that 100%. Yeah. Checking into Bud's at 145, by the way, Oh, oh, sorry, 245. Yeah. I, I got a little confused there because I checked into Bud's at 174. <laughs> yeah. Like a little baby. Like a little baby. And it wasn't like I was a skinny guy. Yeah. You know, I wasn't skinny, but I damn sure wasn't 245 pounds deadlifting over five, benching over four. I mean, come on. Yeah. Then he so cuts if, down yeah, if you're a random. Viet Cong fighter that you've been raised in the fields and eating rice and you weigh he, he was just saying after the podcast He's like, yeah, you know, the average Vietnamese fighter was he's I think he said five five 135 yeah, that's the average fighter. That's literally the size of my wife. Yeah, and so we're talking about just that what what the Hulk is like the movie is like being the actual Hulk. He grabs a hold of you and starts shaking your your head around. Yeah. So 
Yeah. That's interesting. I remember the stories of you saying like, "Oh, when you're in the weight room, and, yeah. you know the the Hulk comes in, yeah. you know, and you all turn it down." Or yeah, because I'm a new guy, man. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That that and plus, him. the other thing that's interesting is, I thought, you know, who is this old guy, right? And in my mind, he was a hundred years old because he was a nom, <laughs> and and yeah. um, you know how old he was? I did the math. Mm-hmm. He was he was like. 43 or 44. Oh, he damn. was five, six or seven years younger than I am right now. And and I'm in there thinking, I like in my mind, I think this guy doesn't know what rock and roll music is, you know? <laughs> and it's just so ignorant. It's so ignorant. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's a he's he was just telling you, he's like a bouncer at this bar, Gosh. hucking people on their head. Oh, he's yeah. a freaking bruiser, dude. But I wanted, I should have talked to him about that. Yeah. You know, I have a bouncing background. Yeah. You know, maybe we could have shared. You uh, guys yeah. have like that big kinship of <laughs> yeah, being the kinship. bouncers. Yeah. I'm sure his uh, his time as a bouncer might might have been more robust than mine. Probably. Yeah. And well, that's, you know, when you, when, when you asked him about lifting and still lifting, like uh, such a key component of life is just to keep exercising. Because, yeah. I mean, what, what did he say he was, 74 years old? Yes. 70, yeah, three. Yeah, I mean, he rolled 70. in here to date with no, fa- I mean, you just in to- totally perfect health. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, shook my hand. You know, you the, the handshake is kind of a little subliminal warning yeah. of just what could happen. You know, he's kind of like, look, yeah. you might think you're tough there, young Jocko, yeah. but, uh, yeah. you know, you want to play? <laughs> Bro, yeah. And I didn't, and I was doing the math when he told me the year he was born during the break, mm-hmm. and I, I was surprised. I, th- I thought maybe like, oh, yeah, maybe 60-something, oh, you know? Because yeah. just, you know, how you can just tell a guy's like just yeah, his whole energy, you know? And their energy, yeah. Yeah. So, but my estimate was way off. So yeah, man, and that and that was his thing too. Like obviously, like he was saying, like yeah, running wasn't my jam mm-hmm. or whatever. It was just straight up lifting. <laughs> yeah, not the, literally nothing else really. I mean, unless I missed something, <laughs> no, just lifting. Was, he was just shacking <laughs> steel. Yeah. Oh, he jacked, swim oh, too. and plus wrestling. Uh, yeah, wrestling yeah. for sure. R- Dang. Which is you know a good skill to have. It's kind of the jam. When when the judo. Navy ju- all Navy judo champion comes running out of a hooch on a training off and you got a double leg. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Uh, well, hey, thanks everybody for listening and we appreciate you hanging out. If you if there's look, you won't probably want to jack steel after you listen to Hulk. Yes. I know I'm kind of feeling like I want to go deadlift something right now. Yes, me too. Yeah, probably going to need some supplementation. You might as well get some. Yep. Get get a little bit of that Jocko fuel. Jockofuel.com. Yep. That's the clean one. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. <laughs> so we got energy drinks. Yeah. Let's go. Jocko, go. Uh, we got some protein. Tastes good and clean. And it's clean protein. No sugar. That's called milk. Yep. All that stuff you can get at JockoFuel.com. The, the, if you want to get the drinks, you can get them at Wawa. You can also get all the stuff at Vitamin Shop. We're in the process of going into so many more stores right now. It's awesome. I'll keep you posted on that, on where you can go to your local neighborhood and get your get your Jocko fuel together. So that's good. And you might have seen recently we started talking about the hunting. I did. Hunting apparel. Yeah. We did a little live last night, a little live, what is it, live Instagram stream? Instagram live. 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 Sure. Yeah, so yeah. we did that yesterday. What was the... Uh, what was the the takeaway on that? Sorry to say I didn't catch it, you know. But what well, was you, it? I guess you're gonna have to go back and review the tapes, it. bro. No, right, that's right, why. Right. That's why I shared it or okay. whatever. I understand fully. That's why I shared it. Obviously, the the players on there, Cam okay. Haynes. Yep. 
Who else? Pete Jocko. Roberts, Kip Folks. So we're, we started a company, Origin Hunt, and we're going to be making American-made hunting gear. Kip Folks has a massive amount of experience. He was one of the original guys at Under Armour. Yeah. And so he has done all kinds of product development. And one of the main guys that they sponsored, well, actually the longest guy sponsored at Under Armour was Cam Haynes. Hmm. And Cam Haynes is obviously a legendary uh, bow hunter. So they had a relationship. And yeah, things, there was an opportunity. Cam was going through whatever he was going through um, at Under Armour. So we had an opportunity to form a company together, all of us. And it's funny, I saw somebody wrote like, oh, oh, I'm glad to see Cam's whatever, the first ambassador for Origin Hunt. And the fact is, no, he's not an ambassador of Origin Hunt. He's a founding a founding owner of Origin Hunt. Mm, so it's damn. a to- totally cool thing for for us to be a part of. And, and, and listen, I know it seems a little bit crazy. I, I, I know you might think I'm a little bit like, oh, you're going a little whatever, right? <laughs> sure. When I, when I yeah. say to you that, hey, we're in an economic war, mm-hmm. and people go, oh, yeah, yeah, they get it. And, but here's the thing. It's like, it's like one of those things that's not in front of your face so you don't worry about it, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, oh, there's something wrong with our, with our sewer pipe under the house. Yeah. And you're like, okay. But as long as it doesn't stink, you're not you're not calling the plumber. Right. It's like right. the check engine light. Yeah, it's like the check engine light, but it kind of flickers on and it goes off. It goes off. And yeah, it yeah, flickers yeah, yeah. on and it goes off. And it flickers on and it goes off. Yeah. I'm telling you, I'm the check engine light right now for the world. <laughs> and I'm telling you right now, the check engine light is on. It should be on. Yeah. And you need to get in the game because that's what's going that's what's happening. We're in an economic war with China. Mm-hmm. And the more we blow it off and act like it's no big deal and keep driving the car, keep flushing the toilet down the sewer pipe, mm-hmm. we're going to look up and that thing's going to burst. And it's going to be shit everywhere. So, And your car's going to break down. So let's not do that. Mm-hmm. This is American-made stuff, originusa.com. This is American-made stuff. It's the Everything about it is American-made. So get in the game, that's what we're doing. We're making workwear, we're making jujitsu gear, we're making hunting gear. Guess what? Guess what I need in my life? Jujitsu gear, hunting gear, workwear. If, um, and I'm not joking by the way with this. Uh, so I saw, a, I don't know if it was a sample or just mm-hmm. one of the, the pants, right, for hunting. Mm-hmm. So that looks like something I would wear. I don't go hunting yep. as of yet. Okay, yeah. And I don't know if I am or not, but mm-hmm. as of right now, I, Do you I am desire to hunt. I am currently not hunting. Okay. About that. Do yeah, you want yeah, to yeah, hunt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things for sure. Yeah. But when I say it's one of those things, yeah. it's one of those things. There's a lot you of know? things. Yes. So I don't know. Am I going to get there? Yes, maybe, maybe not. Anyway, mm-hmm. the question is, what if I just wear them anyway? Is that posing? I mean, tech. I'm not. I'm not doing it. I wouldn't be wearing these hunting pants to make like I'm a hunter. One of the things. One of my philosophies of life is you. You want to have multiple purposes for everything that you have. Mm-hmm. So, even like Delta jeans, yeah. they're they're cool to wear if you want to go to a restaurant with your wife. Mm-hmm. They're also cool if you have to, to just go do squats in or you do yard work in, right? These, that, that's the kind of flexibility you have. Yeah. You want to make things that have multi-purpose capabilities. So, the the 
clothing that we're making for Origin Hunt will be multi-purpose. And if you're in an urban scenario where things are unfolding and you just happen to be rolling <laughs> deep Echo Charles style with a pair of camis, sure. no one's going to give you a second look. Okay. Other than to go, man, those things look legit. Okay, good. Yeah, so I think you're good. I'm clearing you hot. Okay, so even yeah. if there's no scenario unfolding. The only thing that you would have to use caution in, in my opinion, with OriginUSA.com is if you didn't train jiu-jitsu at all, but you thought the geese looked cool and you just went out okay. and got one and you were wearing it down to the club. That makes sense to me, yeah. I wouldn't do that. Okay. That would be posing. Okay, yes. But I if agree. you happen to if you happen to reach in the freaking cupboard and you pulled out a pair of freaking camo origin <laughs> pants, <laughs> right. and you were like, hey, this is what I'm wearing, I think we're good. Wait, but the camo, because hunting camo is different than regular. Like right now, I'm literally wearing camo pants. As but am I. Well, I'm wearing camo shorts. Right. And we're not fighting in the jungle right now. We're not. We're not. Could be. Doing, <laughs> we're ready if we need to be. <laughs> be later. Yeah. Either way, you know, no one's going to be like, oh, er, like thinking that mm-hmm. I'm actually trying to act <laughs> like I'm actually doing X, Y, Z in the jungle. No one is mistaking you for a commando at exactly this point. Exactly right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, they're not. no one's mistaken you for nope. a, for nope. a, for a jungle warrior, right? Correct. Now. Yes. So, do, do I, am I extended that same sort of courtesy yeah. or latitude? With I'm telling you, you're good. And because of the materials that we're using to make this stuff, you're gonna want to. You're gonna be. Right. This will become the standard kind of. I think there's gonna be people all over America just going to the grocery store in right. Origin Hunt camo. They, that's what I was. Kind it's gonna of be a thing. That's what I was planning yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. Because and I'm only. I didn't even feel them. I saw a picture of them, and yeah. I know. I know good yeah. pants when I see them. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? You. Like with a cut. You got that. You got, that, you yep. got that gut instinct yep. that's always been good. You know. Well, well you know, some people got it. Some people got that sure. special talent. But so that's yeah, good. OriginUSA.com. Hey, if you want to get some cool of the. God, what would you say? Like the things we, you and I have said on the podcast. Yeah. We could get some jocklestore.com stuff, a oh, t-shirt. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, of course, I always say how to represent on uh-huh. the path. And it, the reason why I always say it like that yeah. is because that's the best way to say it. <laughs> okay. It's not the best way to say it? No, no. Tell me one more. No, 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 no. Apparently <laughs> it's not. I don't know. Apparently it is because you say so. Okay. All right. Well, in my do opinion, want, so should I far, leave now? Current. <laughs> you want me to go? Current. Because I don't want to. I don't want to get <laughs> in the way of your freaking it, awesome. It feels the most accurate. How about that? Okay. Okay. It seems it. <laughs> John one of his moods today. Yeah. Okay. All right. No, no, no. That's good. That's good. Um. Either way, mm-hmm. if you want to represent while you're on the path, cool. when I'm on the path and I wear this shirt, I am currently representing. Mm-hmm. I'm in the in in the middle of representing while on the path. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Right now, you're in the middle of over explaining nope, something. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> in the spirit of accuracy and consistency and thoroughness, uh, thoroughness. Yeah, I'm explaining. That's how. Cool. So it's better. It's a better. <laughs> yeah. Either way, jockostore.com, that's where you can get this stuff. Good apparel. Mm-hmm. Good apparel. Fits good. Looks good. Yep. Just subscribe to the podcast. Check out jockounderground.com. That's where we're, we're, we got an alternative site in case we need it. You know the deal. If you want to support us there, we're putting out an extra podcast for you, some extra information. It's $8.18 a month. If you can't afford it, look, if you can't afford it, you can email assistance at underground.com. At, at jockounderground.com. Also, check your situation. Check your situation, because if you if $8.18 a month, if that's putting a negative impact on your zone, then check it out. You need to do some assessment of where you're at, because that's not where you want to be. So go back and start listening to the podcast at one. 
We're going to go through all kinds of things that are going to help get you to a point where you're like $8.18 a month to provide freedom to the world. We're in. That's my recommendation there. Uh, YouTube channel. We got a YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. Subscribe to the US uh, Origin USA YouTube channel. Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer. I was going to bring up something about Dakota today. Oh, you know what I was going to bring up Dakota? But I just didn't. Was when Admiral Richards was talking about first responders. Dude, Dakota's a first responder right now. Yeah. Like, not not like, oh, he does, like, uh, training for them. No, no. I'm saying right now, he's a first responder. Dakota Meyer is currently, right now, probably out fighting a fire, helping somebody medically in a car accident. But he, man, he it's it's a freaking insane hard job. And I'll give you an example. And I, I don't want to, I'll give you a, I'll, I'll paraphrase a conversation I had with Dakota the other day. They pull up to a, they pull up to a site that they, they pull up to a call. It's a suicide. It's a, young it's a teenage child who has committed suicide by hanging themselves and i think dakota said something like you know like as we're pulling up and i'm starting to get out of the vehicle like the person i'm with whoever he's with is more experienced person Hmm. and they're like hey grab the bolt cutters and he was like okay and he grabs the bolt cutters because that person knew that they were gonna have to cut them down and that was like the easiest way Mm. so yeah all the first responders out there man um we appreciate what you're doing and that's dakota meyer and that's dakota meyer who is not only a u.s marine not only a medal of honor recipient not only a freaking awesome guy but he's also currently at this time a firefighter emt paramedic dude that sends me pictures at one o'clock in the morning of him responding to a car accident, a house fire, a freaking medical emergency. So God bless that guy and go check out flipsidecanvas.com. Buy some cool stuff to hang on your wall, which is what it is. I forgot to tell you that. That's what, you know what? It doesn't really matter. If, if I was like, hey, he's selling cottage cheese and <laughs> And and freaking uh, clay bowls. I'd be like, cool. Go buy some cottage. I want some cottage cheese now and some clay bowls. That's what we're doing. Dakota, flipsidecanvas.com. Hey, I read a bunch of books. Check those out. Uh, Echelon Front Leadership Consultancy. If you need help inside your organization, go to echelonfront.com. We got some live events coming up. You know what we got coming up? We got the battlefield. EF battlefield. And we take and we go and walk historical battlefields. We do Gettysburg. We do Little Bighorn. So go and check that out. We just go site by site. We walk where the where the leaders walked, where the troops walked. We we discuss their decisions, the good decisions, the bad decisions. It's that's, that's a smaller group, right? Yeah, it's okay. like. 25, 30 people. Oh, yeah. So, and it's two days. And, you know, we like have dinner and right. hang out, yeah. have lunch, all those things. So, hey, look, if you want to go there and you also want to ask about, hey, here's a leadership challenge I'm facing. Here's what I'm doing with my company. That, yeah. That's cool, too. Yeah. And those answers that we give will many times be given with the overlay of, hey, here's a historical battle. Here's what this general did in this particular case. Here's what this colonel did over here. Mm. Here's what this, this, freaking war chief did over here so if you want to 
come and check any of that stuff out, go to echelonfront.com, look for events. We also have an online training academy called The Academy, extremeownership.com. Look, you got to go to the gym if you want to stay in shape. Yep. If you want to improve, if you want to learn guitar, you got to practice. If you want to learn a language like Spanish because you're going to El Salvador because the person that you're replacing just got assassinated there and you're the only person that rogers up to go do it and you got to learn Spanish, you got to go practice it. You got to get taught it. Leadership's the same way and it doesn't happen overnight. You got to learn it. You got to study it. So we have the academy, extremeownership.com. And listen, guess what leadership is? Leadership is life. Whatever you're doing in your life, you have to set goals. You have to figure out what tasks you need to complete. You need to prioritize and execute how you're going to make something happen, how you're going to get that house bought, how you're going to pick up a new job, how you're going to go rebuild this relationship with someone that you hurt. Like Those are all things that we do. Those are all leadership things. They might not sound like it. Leadership is life. So extremeownership.com, yeah, it's about leadership, but don't think to yourself, well, you know, I'm not really in a leadership position, so I, I guess it's not for me. You're in a leadership position. You are in a leadership position. If you're, the, if you're the most junior person working at Wendy's, if you're the, the grill guy at Wendy's, which was my job, by the way, when I was younger, if you're the, that guy, you're, you're, you're flipping burgers at Wendy's, which I did, you're in a leadership position. And you can build relationships with the people there, and you can start to figure out how things work, and you can get promoted, you can move up, you can buy your own store. That's what happens, by the way. Mm-hmm. When you're the most junior person, if you become a leader, if you think like a leader, that's what you can do with your life. And it just doesn't apply to work. You want to build a relationship with another person. That You're in a leadership position. I, I, this might sound uh, cold, but guess what? You have a wife or you have a husband. You're in a leadership position. Mm-hmm. The way you interact with them, the techniques that I use when I'm talking to you, Echo Charles, mm-hmm. as my work compadre, are the same techniques that I use when I'm talking to my wife, when I'm talking to my kids. Mm. They're, they're, it's human interaction. Yeah. So if you need help with that, which by the way, we all do, because you're not born with it. You're not born. Look, can you be a born leader? In, yeah, yes, you can. Can you be kind of charismatic? Yes, you can. The best leaders still make mistakes. They still have room to improve. And people that maybe don't aren't blessed with that natural leadership gift. Guess what? You got room to improve too. There was a there was a guy that's totally slipping in my mind right now. Where um, <clears throat> Admiral Tom Richards was saying he didn't ever raise his voice, like he never heard him raise his voice, but everyone listened to him. Al Huey. Yes. Okay. So it's like okay. So consider that phenomenon, mm-hmm. like in life, where where essentially you're you have this crazy, and when you think about it, it's yeah. crazy this ability to navigate through all kinds of different personalities, mm-hmm. and they all. Get on board with the program. Get on board. Like, basically, you know how to make everyone do what they want to do for themselves or the group or whatever. Even And a lot of times, that's the part that I think maybe kind of goes over my head even, mm-hmm. where it's like, it's not just what I'm trying to make the whole group do. Sometimes it's just one person. In fact, most of the time, mm-hmm. it's just one other person in many different situations right. or whatever. But it's like, yeah, it's your brother, your wife, your friend, 
or whatever. Yep. And you can navigate, no matter the personality, you can navigate and control the scenario for mm-hmm. everyone, you know, for everyone's interests. That's like a superpower. And you know what else is interesting is as you go through life, the more you understand these concepts, you see them everywhere. You see, and the reason I, the, what made me think of that is when you said, hey, you know, wife, this, you, you mentioned wife, you mentioned like uh, peers, you're mentioning all people that you're close to. That, that, that you interact with. Yeah. When you go and walk into a restaurant that you've never been in before and you interact with the hostess, yeah. that person that's gonna get you a table, there's a leadership situation happening. Directly, and, yeah, directly though, not happening. hidden, not no, the kind of like, oh, like, if you really left, it's, it's literally right there. happening. It's right, right there, uh-huh. and you might get, you might get like put, oh, yeah, yes, come have a seat over here, sir, and you get put by the kitchen, and there's noise coming out, there may be some background uh, smells that you're not particularly fond of, that can happen right there. And you can also get put in the window seat overlooking the ocean. That is a leadership scenario. And if you know how to interact with other human beings, you're gonna end up by the window. You're gonna end up overlooking the ocean, not with the racket from the kitchen coming out. You see what I'm saying? So so go to extremeownership.com. Let's get you over at with the ocean view at the restaurant. Let's get you in that situation where you're not having to raise your voice like Al Huey and people are doing what you want them to do because they want to do it because they understand what it is we're trying to do as a team. Go to extremeownership.com. And also, if you want to help service members active and retired, if you want to help people that have served in the military that need help, Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee, she's got an incredible charity organization. She helps people so much, so much. If you wanna help her help people, you wanna help her help veterans, you wanna help her help Gold Star families, go to americasmightywarriors.org so you can either volunteer or donate or help out somehow. Also, check out heroesandhorses.com. What's up with, what's up with Micah, Micah Fink? Just, I don't know what he's doing right now at this moment, but he's probably wrestling a grizzly bear, <laughs> shoeing a horse, yep. or like capturing, uh, or maybe he's sitting in a sweat lodge, hallucinating about like, uh, uh, what does he hallucinate about? About calves. Traffic, traffic light? Traffic no, light, no, that was yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go, just an awesome program. Check that out. And if you need more of us, well, you, you know where we are. Again, do I want you to go and just sign up for the algorithm and put a, put a, a freaking carabiner around your your heart and hook it into the algorithm and have mm-hmm. it ripped out. No, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be, if you want to know what we're doing, check it out. But don't let the check it out turn into carabiner around your heart. That's what I'm saying. Watch out for that. Good. That's the social media platforms that are out there. They got carabiners. They're giving them away. They they want you to take that carabiner. They want right. you to put. They're like, and for some reason you think it's cool. You're like, oh, look at yeah. this shiny carabiner. Like, you give sure. a yeah, look, give a little kid a mousetrap that's rigged to blow. They're gonna pick it up and get whacked by it. They think they were doing the right thing. Curiosity. So watch out for that, man. Mm-hmm. The gram, the Facebook, the Twitter. Mm-hmm. Echoes that echo, Charles. I am at John Willink. And thanks once again to Admiral Thomas Richards for coming by, for sharing his experiences. We, By the way, unfortunately, as soon as we hit stop and we started talking, he's like told me 14 more freaking awesome stories about 
his experiences about Nam, about what they were doing, what they were wearing. So we'll get him back on again. But thanks for coming on. Thanks for your service, Admiral. And and once again, thanks for for taking care of me as a, a young a young SEAL trying to do better. And thanks for setting a great example for the young SEALs on how to be badass frogmen. And to the rest of the military folks out there, thank you for your service in protecting freedom and our way of life around the world. What did Admiral Richards keep saying? 724. 365 days a year. You're out there. You're out there. So thank you. And thanks to our police and law enforcement, all the firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all the first responders. You guys are just out there putting it on the line every day. So we appreciate what you do as well. And everyone else out there, listen, I'm a little at risk for saying this because I talk about things like the indirect approach and I say you should think through your situations and I say you should make iterative decisions about what you're doing so you're taking small steps to move in the right direction. I say those things all the time because that's what I want you to do. 99.9% of the times, that's what I want you to do. But occasionally, on the rare occasion, when things get bad, you have to do what Admiral Tom Richards told his wounded machine gunner to do in a rice paddy in Vietnam, and that is shut up and return fire. That's all I've got. Until next time, Zeko and Jocko.